Golden Earrings, Twilight Zone, one of the earlier videos of MTV where you actually got to watch a story unfold during the video, and I enjoyed the video. I saw someone saying in the chat it was a terrible video. I don't agree. But I'll tell you what is not terrible for sure, and that is our new server. I have sent the previous Poker Fraud Alert server into the Twilight Zone, never to return. If you've been following this show and this site, you've probably noticed over the last few weeks that the site has not been working very well, especially when radio is going to come on, 
because when radio is coming on, a lot of people thought maybe we were getting attacked, like a DDoS attack, but that's not what was happening. It's that the server itself was having big problems, and when everybody flooded into the chat room, and when I say everybody, it doesn't have to be a lot of people, even 20 people, um, put a lot of stress on the server, which wasn't working well. It's kind of like, if I can give an analogy here, it's kind of like if you're sick, and something that's very easy to do normally becomes very difficult. So the server was sick, and something like the chat room, which normally it runs very well, it was unable to do, and that's what set the load average spiking up every time we had radio and making the server and the site unusable. We were barely able to get radio done last week, though it was two and a half days late. It was on really late at night. Uh, We had two postponements of radio due to the server problems, and... This week's was postponed by one day as I was moving to a new server so we won't have these issues anymore. I got tired of trying to fix it. I just moved to a new one. And this one's working great. The load average right now, 0.49, which may not mean very much to people who are not technical, but lower is better. And last week we were having load averages of like 69 during the show. So 0.49 is spectacular. So we're not going to have any problems tonight. Chat room should work okay. And we are doing the show. The only problem this week, well, there's two problems this week. Number one is we don't have that much to talk about. There's not just, there's just not that much on the agenda this week. There's just not much new news in the world of poker or gambling for that matter. It's just kind of a quiet week. A second, don't have a co host. But other than that, things should be okay. If you want to call me up, you can reach me at two different phone numbers. First one is our main number, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s telephone, a rotary phone, sitting on top of Mount Charleston, which is a big mountain near Las Vegas. It always forwards to wherever I am. And you can call me on that phone. Either phone number you call, you have to show your caller ID. And if I don't answer the phone, it just means that I'm probably busy right now. So just call back in 15 or 20 minutes if I don't answer. You can also text me. You can. I already have two texts tonight. The text number is the same as the main phone number. 775-FRAUD55. That's 775-372-8355. That's how you text me. And I will check those and read them to the public throughout the show, unless you ask me not to read it in public. Finally, you can find me in the chat room. I will not be chatting very much there, and I won't even be reading everything, but I'll try. But when I do a show by myself, it is tough to read a chat room as I do a show, but I will do my best. That is by clicking on the top of the screen, near the top of the screen, a big chat button. You need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account that is verified to chat in the chat room. We have a free roll tonight starting in 20 minutes, so I want to get that out of the way. A $55 plus a $25 restaurant gift card. And I meant to bring the gift card into the studio, but I forgot, and I'm not going to pause the show to do that. So I'll just describe the gift card from memory. But it's a restaurant gift card. uh, Only good in certain chain restaurants, which I'll tell you shortly. 
Uh, it's a $55 free roll. First place, $25. Second place, also known as the Shady J, will be the gift card itself, the $25 gift card. Third place, $15. Fourth place, $10. Fifth place, $5. Should be a shorter, or should I say a smaller pool of players tonight, because we have an off night being Wednesday. We're usually on on Tuesday. 6.30 is our new time. We're not starting early tonight. In fact, we're starting late but late for our new time, early for our old time. But we are going to try to get the show started at 6.30 from now on every Tuesday night. I apologize for all the deviations in the schedule that have happened for various reasons. I'm going to try to get back on the Tuesday schedule and stick to it as much as possible starting next week, now that we're past the server problems, now that uh, my health problems have mostly gone away, though my ribs are still not better. So Tuesday at 6.30 is the new time for this show. We've only gone off... On the expected night, Tuesday night, three of the past 11 weeks. Pretty bad record, but I will be improving that, I promise you. So, I do have to dedicate this show to all of my great listeners and posters from the great country of Canada, who have once again proven to be head and shoulders above the competition at both hockey and curling. I know you're surprised to hear me say that as an American. But, you know, I I have to admit that Canada did pretty well, at least at hockey and curling. So I wanted to give that dedication. And a little bit more than just a dedication... Pretend like we're back at the World Series and someone just won a bracelet from, from Toronto. This show dedicated to the fine country of Canada. It's not America's hat. Don't call it that. Maybe Canada would be weak. Maybe they would have been taken over by another country by now if they didn't have the U.S. protecting them. That's very possible. Maybe Canada would be irrelevant to the world if they weren't right on the border of the U.S. Maybe it's not a coincidence that all of the big cities in Canada, aside from Edmonton, are sitting right on the U.S. border. Kind of like how a leech has to sit on the skin of its host. I'm not going to acknowledge any of those things, and I'm going to praise Canada for their Olympic performance. So as an American, congratulations, Canada. Congratulations... To you for all of your success in hockey and curling. I will be visiting Canada sometime soon. And all I ask, only thing I ask from you in Canada, is that you let your currency devalue right around the time I come there. It shouldn't be worth a dollar. It shouldn't be worth a real dollar, I'm sorry. I remember when the Canadian dollar was worth much less than the American dollar. And it was cheap to travel to Canada. Went there last year. It was brutal. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the one day I spent in Canada. In uh, Waterton National Park. And uh, I might even be going to Vancouver later this year. <laughs> so, anyway. I was not uh, doing this spontaneously. I was asked to give this dedication. And I kept to my word. Somewhat. Okay, let's go over the agenda tonight. 
Someone says Druff is geographically challenged. How am I geographically challenged? It's definitely true that most Canadian big cities are right on the U.S. border. I, I really can't think of any except for Edmonton that aren't. I mean, yeah, Calgary is what, like 90 miles north of the border, but that doesn't really count. Now, to be fair, Nevada has the same problem. Nevada is kind of a leech off of California. I bet you can't name any big cities in Nevada that are not right near the California border, because there aren't any. Basically, Nevada is Reno and Vegas. But at least Nevada is just a state. And at least Nevada has brought gambling to our great country. Um, Canada... I guess they've brought us hockey and maple syrup. Someone saying not at the border. Toronto is 130 kilomet- kilometers north. Well, 130 kilometers, that's still less than 100 miles. That's, that's what I still count being right on the border. Not being right on the border is like being 300 or more miles in. No, I guess they didn't think of Ottawa. To be honest, though, I... I don't think of Ottawa very much. I don't care if it's the capital. I just don't think of it. I don't even think Canadians think of Ottawa. Unless they live there. It's funny, the Canadian poker players I've met, some of them I've really liked, and some of them I haven't liked very much at all. Like, one I don't like very much at all is Gavin Smith. But there's other ones who are very nice. And some kind of in the middle. I guess kind of like Americans. I guess I can say that about Americans, too. All right, enough Canada talk. Let's get to the show. I guess the top story this week, there isn't any huge story this week, so nothing's really a top story. But the first one we'll talk about is Chris Ferguson returning to poker, probably. Now, some of you might think, oh, big deal. You know, we got our money back, or some of us got our money back from Full Tilt, or... We haven't, we're going to get it soon, maybe. So, how much harm did Chris Ferguson really do when it was all said and done? And wasn't this the fault of Howard Letterer and Ray Batar? How do you blame poor Jesus Ferguson? Isn't it blasphemy to hate on Jesus? Well, not for me, I'm Jewish. And I am going to hate on Jesus, and I'll tell you why. I'm very unhappy about his supposed plans to return to poker. Here's a story that's not getting that much attention. Got some on 2 plus 2, but really not anywhere else. There is alleged collusion and soft play that may have occurred at the Medium Stakes Poker Tour, which I hadn't even heard of before, in Minnesota. The running aces stop of that poker tour between the first and second place finishers when it was three-handed. So we'll discuss that. I'll play you some clips from the streaming broadcast of that tournament during the hands-in-question, and I'll give you my opinion as to what I think. This is not a poker story so much, except for the fact that this guy played a little bit of poker. A former light heavyweight champion, even a bronze medal winner, was arrested for a bad debt to the win. Little advice for everybody here don't ever have a bad debt to a casino. If you want to stiff your friends, fine. You want to stiff your peers, fine. Okay, not fine, but 
you're not going to go to jail for that unless you scam them directly and you probably still won't go to jail. But if you stiff the casinos, you will go to jail. They're very, very aggressive and very, very good at tracking you down and forcing you to pay and putting you in jail for stiffing them. And that's what happened to this guy. So don't stiff the casinos. Speaking of casinos, Harrah's in Atlantic City is being sued for an alleged assault against guests by who? Security? What? Yeah, apparently, security at Harrah's in Atlantic City attacked a guy just because he was unhappy that his key cards no longer worked and he was arguing about uh, why he couldn't get new ones made. Yeah. Now, this should be very scary to me, who always argues with customer service people when inconvenient or bad things happen, especially when I'm traveling. So am I afraid to set foot in a Caesars property now, knowing that I will be next? No. Because I think there's a good chance that this family might have had it coming, or at least somewhat had it coming. I will explain. Shane Schlager also known as Shaniac. He's been around in the tournament poker scene for quite some time. A lot of people like him. He's been on a previous radio show that I was part of. I, he'd probably even come on this show. I, I should have asked him to come on here. I don't. I talk about these people who would come on, and then I forget to ask them to come on. I just talk about them. But maybe we'll have him on in the future. You know, we're we're on pretty good terms. Not good friends, but pretty good terms. Anyway, he came out with a very surprising article about himself on Slate.com where he admits to being a crack smoker. Not a former crack smoker. Not an uplifting tale of a former drug addict who got clean and succeeded in poker. No, a current crack smoker. That's pretty ballsy to write about. So I'm going to talk about what Shane wrote about, especially because a lot of people know who he is. And you know, How often does someone come forward and say, not only did I smoke crack, but I still smoke crack. You always seem to read about people smoking crack either from third-party reports, like tabloids or whatever, or from people who are trumpeting how clean they got and how they used to smoke crack. But no one ever admits they actually do it, at least not in print like that. Pretty unique blog he wrote there, or article, whatever you want to call it. And I'll talk about that a bit. Well, I was thinking today about the World Series of Poker main event champions and their lives since they won the main event. And I've thought about that myself. I've entered the main event every year since 2005. Got 88th in 2010. And I'll tell you, after I got past 100th place and you know knew I was down to the final 100, I did think about how would my life change if I won this. Well, 14 people are going to talk about that have won it since the year 2000. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, their lives are not very good right now. Not all of them. Some of them are doing fine, but some of them are not doing so well. I will briefly talk about each of the main event champions since 2000. Talk about where I believe they are in life right now. I have to piece together just various things I heard. And I'll give you my opinion as to... <laughs> whether I feel winning the main event is a bad thing for most people. And I say most people because if I won it, it wouldn't be bad for me. If I won it, I I might have some unwanted extra attention 
But other than that, I definitely would be very happy with both the money and the perks that go with it. I wouldn't be one of these guys you'd find out is broke in five or ten years. I wouldn't be the guy putting my bracelet up on eBay or giving it away to the IRS. But I know that everybody's different, and for some people, it's better not to have success. Finally, if there's time, since this is kind of a short agenda week, I'm going to have the Ask Dan Druff segment. That is where people can come on and ask me questions, whether on the phone or the chat room. It'll be an interactive section of the show where I will take questions, and provided that they're not too intrusive or personal, I'll answer them. And I'll try to answer as much as possible. Can't promise I'll answer everything, but I'll try to answer as much as possible if there's time. I'll try to devote at least a little time to the Ask Dandruff section, but it will be at the end of the show. reason it's at the end is because a lot of people tune into this show for the scheduled content. They Some of them don't like the banter and the, uh, the free-form discussion of topics that people who are listening live bring up. And I read a recent piece someone wrote nothing having to do with poker, but about podcasting, that you should not make your radio show about the live audience, because usually your audience who listens in the archives is much greater, not greater and better, but greater in size, than the people listening live. That's definitely the case here. We have about uh, ten times the number of people listening not live than live. So, The piece I read was saying be careful not to fall into the trap of making your show all about what the live listeners want, even though it's easier to fall in that trap because they're right there talking to you. And that's a good point. But I want to make it for both. Even if it's a a smaller group, I want to make it for both. So free roll starting in, uh, in five minutes. Again, if, uh, I, I think I forgot to mention this. You need a registered account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum dated June 1st, 2013 or before. If you don't have a registered account by June 1st, then you need to email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com or PM me, Dan Space Druff, on the forum and convince me you've been around listening to this show for at least three weeks. Tell me some things you've heard on the show over the past three weeks that was not listed in the description. That is, get more detail than what the description gives. And if I believe you've been listening for at least three weeks, or if I knew you before from another forum or somewhere else in my life, I will grant you a lifetime exception to win the free money in the free roll. It is completely free to play in the free roll, but you only qualify for the free money if you have an account before June 1st that's in good standing, or I have given you permission. And you need to do this before the free roll starts. So you have five minutes to get that letter out. There is no late registration. It starts at 7.10. It says 7.40 erroneously on the uh, the thread, which I'll have to fix, but it's 7.10. And there's no late registration, so get in there. I will pay you via PayPal, bank transfer, or check. And I've done all three. I've had people ask me for checks. I've sent them checks. I've had people ask me to transfer money to their bank. I have. And I've sent PayPal to most people, and I prefer PayPal, but uh, I'll do any of those three. So this is, uh, I believe, the only real money free roll 
like this where you actually get paid direct cash rather than some money on a poker site. Much better to get direct cash. And it's a pretty small pool of players, too. So there's been people who've won, you know, hundreds of dollars over time playing this thing. You're not going to get rich playing it, but, you know, just small amounts of money while you listen. It's definitely worth it. So let's get going here. Take a quick look at the chat room. 775 fraud 55 Oh, I see there's an additional $5 donated. We'll just uh, toss that on to first place. It'll be $30 now for first. $30 now for first instead of 25 Someone's saying in chat, if I won the main event, I'd start a poker podcast and do a 10 k free roll, so Druff couldn't say he's given away more money than any poker show. <laughs> Someone else in the chat, Adam Schwartz of the 2 Plus 2 PokerCast. You know, I may be banned on 2 Plus 2, but at least the hosts are not banned from listening to this show. Question for Todd, do you plan to smoke less crack in 2014 than you did in 2013? Here, Adam, I'll make a promise to you. I'm not going to smoke less crack in 2014 than I did in 2013. I promise to smoke the exact same amount. No question about that. Okay, let's go on here. First topic, I guess we have Adam Schwartz live because uh, I guess he can't listen on Tuesday because of his show. So welcome to him. Chris Ferguson. Jesus Ferguson. He's, uh, we're getting the second coming of Jesus in poker. And this is a second coming of Jesus I think that most of us can agree we don't want. Uh, Here's the report. Um, Basically, um, Diamond Flesh reported this on 2 Plus 2. And uh, he's saying that he will come back probably uh, around the World Series of Poker. So, what Diamond Flesh wrote specifically is he expects to be back, especially for WSOP. Um, And then, just to continue what Diamond Flesh said, uh, someone else on 2 Plus 2 said, wasn't Ferguson the least scummy of the group, that is, of the four board members consisting of Chris Ferguson, Ray Bittar, Rafe First, and Howard Lederer, wasn't he the least scummy of these people by a wide margin? Didn't he snap ship like 20 million back to full tilt when it needed liquid, knowing he would probably never see it again, and no other owners were doing anything similar? And so she said back, he didn't ship $20 million to Full Tilt. He tried to withdraw $5 million that he had in the hidden bank account and then thought the better of it and reversed the transfer. His $14 million balance was used by Full Tilt to keep the cover-up going. He claims without his permission, and he wanted it back. Even threatened to kill the Tapey deal. Remember uh, when Group Tapey or Tappy wanted to buy Full Tilt? If he didn't get it back. So, uh, Diamond Flesh confirming what I've always said, that Chris Ferguson is a selfish piece of shit. Now... I guess let me start from the most basic when it comes to Chris Ferguson. Because I want all the listeners of this show to really understand how much we should be holding all four of these board members in contempt. Now, people who aren't on the board, it's a lot tougher to figure out because it's harder to know what guys like Ivy and Andy Block and uh, and others, you know, how much they knew, how much they didn't, how much say they really had, how much power they really had. I've heard a lot of mixed things about that. I've heard a lot of mixed things about the visibility they had into what was going on there. But what's 
100% certain is that the four full-tilt board members, Rafe First, Chris Ferguson, Howard Lederer, and Ray Batar, all had very much knowledge and access into what was going on, and they were expected to know what was going on. They were expected to be actively running full tilt. They were expected to really know everything. So they can't plead ignorance. You, you know, Howard Letterer's his interview with uh, with Poker News, where he denied so much. Uh, he tried to play it off like Ray Bittard dropped it on him at the last minute about the fact that they had no money, that he didn't know the whole time they were deeping, dipping into player funds. And I don't believe that for a second. Nobody who's been following this believes this for a second. And when you have people like Howard Letterer when they're asked about this and, and the responses you get are things like I don't have all the facts I, I don't know nope. I just don't know I don't know I don't know I have no recollection I'm just speculating now so I just don't you know so I don't know I remember sometime in the afternoon I don't even know when I don't know yeah so he, he never knows he never knows anything and that's Pretty much the full tilt guys, aside from Bitar, they want you to believe this about them, these other three. They want you to believe that they had no idea what was going on till just days before Black Friday. Just very conveniently, days before Black Friday happened to be when they found out. But that's not true. And even if by some fluke it is true, which it isn't, but if by some fluke it is true, they should have known. It was their job to know. They were put in the position to know. When your job is to know what's going on at the company and then the money gets stolen and then you claim, well, I wasn't looking or I wasn't kept in the loop or I didn't know, that's almost as bad as knowing and, and putting the rubber stamp of approval on it. Howard Lederer, Ray First, and Chris Ferguson not only did know, they were supposed to know. So it doesn't really matter that much if they even knew. It's the same reason that CEOs of companies can be criminally liable for what the company does under them, even if they are not personally the ones stealing, even if they're not the ones who are personally taking the the actions that get the company in trouble. They are supposed to know. And the reason that law is in place is so the CEO takes more accountability for what happens. Otherwise, a CEO can intentionally make himself blind to shady things happening within the company and then say, say, hey, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I don't know. Yeah, so it's important to understand that Chris Ferguson is not innocent in any way. Now, some people excuse Chris Ferguson because unlike Howard Lederer, who has this beautiful house in Las Vegas and seemed to be, uh, you know, had a birthday party with like 20 cakes. This is actually after the bus, too. Uh... Chris Ferguson was not living large. Chris Ferguson seemed to be living as just a regular guy. And some people got the idea from that that Chris Ferguson, if he wasn't living large, must not have made that much money from it. Or maybe that all the money he has came from somewhere else. And yeah, Howard Letterer really did have like 20 birthday cakes. It was crazy. I posted a picture of it once. I think this is at his uh, 50th birthday party. Howard definitely loves cake. He had a cake of his house. 
But um, Chris Ferguson, just because he doesn't live the high life, doesn't mean that he didn't steal our money. Doesn't mean that he didn't have knowledge and give his approval to Full Tilt stealing our money to keep themselves going. Even if he didn't personally benefit from it, which I believe he did a lot, if he had knowledge of our money being stolen, was on the board and let it happen, then he is guilty. A staggering amount of money was stolen from our community by Full Tilt. A staggering amount. Some people have excused them by saying, look, it wasn't their fault. The payment processors were unable to actually collect the money from people's bank accounts due to the UIGEA making it tough for these processors to be able to process the money illegally. So if Full Tilt wasn't getting their money from the processors, what are they supposed to do, to shut down? Well, look, when you run an illegal poker site, when you run a poker site and take business from U.S. customers against U.S. law, you have to prepare yourself for things like that happening. You can't give distributions, large distributions, like I think Ivy was getting like almost a million a month. You can't give distributions like that and leave yourself with such little wiggle room to where if you have unexpected business expenses, such as your payment processor screwing you, that you have to then steal player money to cover yourself. And that's where Full Tilt made the huge mistake. They were giving the large distributions, I think, all the way up through April of 2011. Or if not then, very close. They were distributing the maximum, keeping the minimum on hand, and their basic business strategy was as long as we have enough money to cash out people who who are asking for cash outs, no one's the wiser. Everything's okay. Where they ran into the problem was the kind of two-pronged attack, first from their payment processors that weren't giving them the money, but then they didn't want to let the people depositing know this and make it look bad, so they just uh, credited people's accounts but didn't actually get the money. And then Black Friday happened too, so then they were really in bad shape. So they kind of got shut down at the worst time, but the truth is, this would have kept going on. If there was no Black Friday, it would have gotten worse and worse and worse, and instead of uh, 200 million stolen... Uh, it, it, actually, more than 200 million. Uh, 400 million stolen. Well, I forget the number now. I forgot the number. Instead of a few hundred million stolen, it could have been a billion stolen or two billion stolen after enough time passed. They weren't going to change. A leopard doesn't change its spots. Once you think it's okay to steal player money, once you think it's okay to use all the player money except for what's minimally needed to cash people out, you're going to keep doing it. Someone in chat saying, Full Tilt had a marketing war with poker stars. Both companies spent too much, but Full Tilt went overboard. That's, uh, I'll, I'll say that's somewhat true. I actually benefited from that marketing war, which I'll tell some other time. Not a whole lot. I got $7,500 from the, uh, <laughs> from the marketing war when I was, uh, down to the final hundred of the main event. But, uh, yeah, they did spend too much on marketing. But look, poker stars was mindful of their books and they didn't steal the player funds Full Tilt did it is never ever okay to take even one penny out of the player funds the player funds should always be at 100% the entire time you shouldn't borrow one penny from them because the players own that money you don't 
Unless the players give you permission to take their money, you don't have a right to take it. You do not have a right to take player money if you're running a poker site. If you think you do, then you need to disclose this to the players that when you deposit to our site and we say you have this much online, we may have already spent part of it. We reserve the right to take some of your balance to spend for marketing or whatever else. If you have run out of your marketing budget, then stop spending on marketing. If you can't continue operating, then you're supposed to shut down and give everyone their money. You don't keep operating and dip into player funds as if it's a free loan to you. And that's what Full Tilt did. And as far as the disbursements go, they shouldn't have made them that large. They should have realized. They they should have realized that they're in a very precarious business where a lot can happen and has happened. In fact, even as processors were stealing from them, remember when they got a hundred million stolen from uh, from that guy? I'm forgetting his name now. I keep forgetting his name. The guy who stole a hundred million the payment processor, uh, Svetkov. That was his name, Daniel Svetkov. He stole a hundred million from uh, Poker Stars and Full Tilt, and and Full Tilt didn't learn from that. They still kept giving the giant distributions. So anyway. These people should not come back to poker. They should not be welcomed back to poker. If I see Chris Ferguson at my table, I will say something. I will mention that he stole, his company stole, that he was the board, he was on the board, that he obviously approved of it happening. He didn't make any attempt to stop it. That his company stole money from our community, stole hundreds of millions of dollars from our community. Someone saying in the chat, in Ferguson's defense he was the only board member against distributions didn't want to pay them at all well, that's good but it was still happening they were still dipping into player funds under his watch if I was in Chris Ferguson's position and I started to see Full Tilt spinning out of control to the point that they were now going to be taking money out of player funds. That's when I would resign. That's when I would say, I'm gone. I might even say, stop doing that or I'm going to blow the whistle on you guys. But I definitely would not continue sitting on the board and quietly letting this happen. There's no way. So, we will never know all the exact details. And keep in mind, by the way, when Full Tilt was down for a little while, right after Black Friday, they had up a message, I think it was like two weeks after Black Friday, that your money is safe and secure. This is while it was actually all gone. And so something that's forgotten, everyone knows about the fact that U.S. players haven't had their money for three years until just last week some of them got paid. No thanks to Full Tilt, thanks to Poker Stars uh, buying them from the you know, from the DOJ. But a lot of people forget that after Black Friday for a few months, Full Tilt continued to operate for non-U.S. players, and basically what they were doing there was robbing Peter to pay Paul. They continued to operate, saying, "Hey, maybe we will be able to get enough deposits from these non-U.S. players to pay the U.S. players." So they were stealing from even more people after that. They still didn't learn their lessons. 
So, that's another thing I've said before. That it is completely unethical to take a deposit on your poker site and then use that deposit to pay someone else to where that person no longer actually has money. They think they have money, but they don't. You've spent their money by giving it to someone else. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's a classic example of that. So they continued to do that after Black Friday. Why didn't Chris Ferguson speak up if he hated this so much? Why didn't Chris Ferguson blow the whistle on this if he thought it was so wrong? Beer and Poker saying in the chat room, Ferguson hasn't said shit since Black Friday. Even Howard gave that long interview, which was laughable, but still I'd say it's slightly better than saying nothing at all. Especially since Jesus was the, the biggest shareholder. It's true, he said nothing. Someone in the chat room talking about those months uh, after Black Friday. All those two months I was trying to cash out, got one cash out, all others got stuck. So yeah, this, here's someone in our chat room right there that got stolen from when Full Tilt uh, pretended to have everyone's money safe and secure. And they were blaming on the DOJ. You remember that? They were you know, three years ago claiming that they have all our money, they just uh, are having trouble paying us because of various regulations by the DOJ. All complete lies! All complete lies. They didn't have our money. And Chris Ferguson was on the board as this happened. You can't sit on the board while all this happens, while all this theft occurs, while all these misleading statements occur, while people are encouraged to deposit under highly misleading and fraudulent circumstances. You can't sit on the board for that and say nothing and then claim you're innocent later on or claim that you're not that bad of a guy. You can't. If you are a good person and you're on the board when this is happening and you can't stop them, you resign from the board and you blow the whistle. All right, so uh, I don't have that much more to say about Chris Ferguson other than I encourage everybody here, if you see him at the World Series at your table, give him hell. And I promise you, if he ends up at any of my tables, I will give him hell, at least to the point to where it doesn't become a major distraction to my tournament or where I get threatened to be kicked out or get a penalty. I'm not going to take penalties for harassing Chris Ferguson, but I will definitely make it known at the table what he did and why it's not okay that he's among us again. I'll say that to any of those four board members who appear, but I don't think any will appear except for Chris Ferguson. Uh, Howard Letterer's interview with Poker News, by the way, was an attempt, an ill-advised attempt, to get back in the good graces of the community. Howard Letterer always relished being admired by the community. He liked to be known as the professor, as this really smart, great poker player that uh, everyone admired so much, that uh, a pillar of the poker community. And he wanted that to be his legacy. Howard Letterer pictured that one day, you know, when he's dead, everyone's going to think, wow, that Howard Letterer, a great poker player and a great guy. And now all people will remember him for is this whole full tilt debacle. So he was so unhappy with that being his legacy that he tried to do that interview with Poker News thinking that maybe he can snow everyone and somehow convince everyone it was all Ray Bittar's fault. And when the public reacted so badly to the interview, which I could have predicted, anyone could have predicted, except for Howard himself, I guess, 
he canceled all future interviews, including one he already had on tap to do with Diamond Flesh. So, not going to make it easy on him if I see him at my poker table. And I hope nobody else does. I hope he gets a lot of hassle. I hope he has a bad experience of the World Series with people not welcoming him. And uh, I will say it's easier to attack someone at the table who's male than someone who's female. And I'm glad all four people involved with this are male because when you attack women at the table, and when I say attack, I don't mean physically attack, but I mean verbally attack, you always have guys who are like the uh, wannabe knights in shining armor that just go nuts if you ever say anything bad to a woman. They think you just you just can't say anything bad to a woman. It just makes you an evil person. No matter what the woman's done, it, it, for some reason, uh, some guys just think you just can't do that or, do, or shouldn't do that, and they don't want to listen to any kind of reason. But And I found myself in that position like when Annette Oberstadt was at my table, and I'm thinking, well, you know, do I say anything? And like... And I, I could tell all the guys at the table are very friendly with her, and I could tell like everyone's going to hate my guts big time and not listen to anything I have to say if I do. So like, with someone like that, it's tougher, especially with her being young too. But uh, a guy like Ferguson, who's uh, you know a dude in his forties, maybe he's even fifty now. I don't know, but uh, whatever he is, he won't get any sympathy other than people who uh, still see him as some kind of celebrity. So moving on. 775-FRAUD-55 775-372-8355 That's our text number and our phone number you can call me. You can call, also call 702-430-1808 or find me in the chat room. This from someone in the 754 area code on a text message. Good work getting everything up and running. So someone happy to see the server working well again and indeed it is. One thing I haven't checked here I'm, I'm afraid to check it I have to check it <laughs> I haven't checked if the show's archiving It should be, because I checked the archives Earlier when I set this up Now and now I'm just paranoid I have to go check if it's archiving Let's see If it's not archiving, you're going to hear me freak out This happened one time And I actually redid the whole show Oh good, it's archiving Alright yeah, I actually once did the same show twice, just because I was so frustrated it didn't archive. Anyway, uh, second message from the same guy who messages me every week. I've got a pre-boner. Don't let me down now, Druff. This is a guy who has a boner every show and tells me about it in the 815 area code. So those are our two texts so far. You can always text me, and I will read it on the air. Moving on to the second topic. The alleged collusion and soft play at the medium stakes poker tour in Minnesota, which I think is the funny name for a poker tour. Uh, There's not a lot of allure to the medium stakes poker tour, if you think about it. Who's going to want to go play the medium stakes poker tour? I mean, yeah, if you're a medium stakes player, fine, but do you really want the poker tour to be named after it actually being medium stakes. Who would want that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But uh, that's what it is, the medium stakes poker tour. And uh, they were at Running Aces, which is at uh, Harness Park in Minnesota, in uh, Columbus, Minnesota. And uh, Minnesota kind of has their own poker scene. 
I don't know if any of you have observed the Limit Hold'em community, but there's a lot of Minnesota players. I, I guess the best-known Minnesota Limit Hold'em player is Mike Schneider, Schneids, but uh, there's a number of others. There's a lot of people who play poker that came from Minnesota, who played at the Canterbury. Uh, there was a lot of Limit over there, that's why a lot of them are Limit players, but, and a lot of good players from in that area. Uh, but there's definitely a disproportionate number of Minnesotans in poker compared to the U.S. population. Uh, so when they have these Minnesota tournaments, uh, there's a lot of people whose names you probably don't know, but are very well known in Minnesota. They've kind of got their own little poker subculture over there. So, at uh, this Harness Park event, which took place on February 8th, um, the winner name the winner's name is Mark Sandness. The second place finisher is Blake Bond. The third place finisher Tyler Caspers. I have never heard of any of these guys. Not to say they're bad players. I just saying I, I've never heard of them. Uh, that uh, Mike Schneider I talked about earlier. He finished 11th in that tournament. Anyway, the reason I mentioned those three, Sandness, Bond, and Caspers, is uh, they were at the table when the controversial hands occurred. And there's been some discussion of this on 2 Plus 2, and I think since this is a site that discusses scams and scandals, that it's worth talking about this, even though it's not entirely clear whether there really was soft play or collusion going on. Now, let me set this up for you so you can understand everything. At the uh, Medium Stakes Poker Tour, <laughs> I, still, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, Does that really draw in a lot of people? Oh, I can't miss this one, the Medium Stakes Poker Tour. Do you even brag about that to your friends, that you won the Medium Stakes Poker Tour? Are they going to have the Micro Stakes Poker Tour? <laughs> But uh, here's what happened. Uh, first of all, if you go to the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum, you can find uh, Soft Playing slash Collusion at Medium Stakes Poker Tour Running Aces Minnesota thread. And in that thread, you'll see a link to the event itself and a link to the video of the entire event. Not the entire event, but the entire final table. It's talking about, uh, I don't know, four hours or so. It's a pretty slow download. It's 1.8 gigabytes. It took me like half an hour to download it because the server is very slow on their end. But I I got it, and I watched it. I watched the relevant hands. I didn't watch the whole four-hour thing. But here are the allegations aimed at Mark Sandness and Blake Bond, the guys who finished first and second, regarding the play when it was three-handed. This is posted on 2 Plus 2. It appears after watching the Mid-Stakes Poker Tour live stream that took place at Running Aces in Minnesota this past Sunday that there appeared to be soft playing and collusion going on between two players. One of the players being Medium-Stakes Poker Tour pro Blake Bond and the other, playing being, the other player being Mark Sandness. Tons of live, live stream viewers voiced their opinions and displeasure as to what was going on. Because this is being live streamed, so a lot of people were very unhappy watching this. It is known that Blake and Mark had a percentage of actions swapped between each other in this tournament, and the play between them made it very clear. The fact that they were soft-playing colluding is both wrong and illegal. 
Something needs to be done about this by both mid-stakes poker and running aces. Gotta feel bad for Tyler Caspers, the third-place finisher, since it was clearly two versus one when they got down to three-handed. I talked to Tyler after, and he feels as if, as if they cheated. It's another guy I should have gotten on this show. I'm really dropping the ball here. Also, when all the collusion chatter started in the live stream chat box and on Twitter, there was an unplanned break taken. After the break, they moved Mark C, so him and, Br- and Blake were, weren't sitting next to each other anymore. It's interesting. Just a few hands that caught everyone's attention. The first hand, Blake had Queen 9 in a heads-up pot against Mark. Board ran Queen high, and they checked it down. This is with uh, Blake flopping top pair. Just checked it down with him. Second hand, Blake raised the small blind with King 10. And Mark folded his big blind with King Jack suited? He did. Number three, Blake had pocket sixes, Mark had six deuce. The board came out two, four, six, seven. On the turn, Blake shoves all in, gives Mark a look, and Mark folds. Another guy writing about this uh, pretty much uh, agreed that something was wrong there, at least with the King Jack hand and the 6-6-6 deuce hand, saying, I respect the games of both players, but what I witnessed Sunday night appears to be a very clear case of soft playing. Though I could be very wrong, in my opinion, it may have just been straightforward play with Mark and Blake being extra cautious with Tyler being the short stack, Tyler being uh, you know, the, the guy who finished third. Now here were the payouts in that tournament. First place was almost ninety-one thousand. Second place was a bit short of fifty thousand. Third place thirty-three thousand approximately. Now what happened when it went down to heads up? When uh, Tyler Casper's busted, leaving these other two. What did they do? Because it sounds like, from what I described, there's a lot of cautious play going on here. You know, but Blake raises with King Ten. Mark, with King Jack suited, doesn't even call in the big blind and folds in a small blind big blind confrontation. Um, huge lay, lay down made with uh, two pair, with a lot of money already in the pot, with a 6-6 six, six versus 6 deuce, two and all in. Uh, checking down with top pair. You'd think with these, uh, with the amount of caution being shown here, that uh, heads up probably would have been a very long dragged out contest unless they happen to have a cooler situation where they get dealt aces and kings well heads up play between these two lasted a whopping two hands (laughs) and what hands did they have well the first hand they got it all in with two monsters of pocket sixes and pocket fours. <laughs> the second hand, um, Mark Sandness had pocket aces, Blake Bond had uh, a straight draw on the flop, and they got it all in then. Now that one made more sense because uh, Blake had already lost chips in that first hand when he lost the, uh, the fours against the sixes. But still, um, when they're that cautious all that time, and then suddenly 
they get dealt sixes and fours and get it all in pre, that's uh, a little bit suspicious to me. Now, there is an explanation to this, which needs to be noted, and that's why I'm not 100% sure, because I did watch part of this. Tyler Caspers was not playing very well. Tyler Caspers was too tight three-handed. Now, it's true he was getting uh, a lot of trash, but he was also just too tight. He was folding too much. It was one of these situations where he was both too tight, three-handed, and also getting dealt a lot of trash. So, both of these other players, who are apparently very experienced, recognized this. And their excuses were that they felt that uh, Tyler Caspers was going to blind himself out anyway. That he had no chance. So, um, both just felt, if they just kind of hung around that Tyler Casper's uh, poor three-handed play was going to guarantee these other two first and second. And at that point, then they'd go back to their normal game. But that they both just noticed independently of one another that the third player was too tight and that it would be a mistake to do anything but just let himself uh, blind himself off. Kind of the same concept of how you have two big stacks in a tournament and they're afraid to tangle. They're both afraid of each other. They're, they're happy to be aggressive with short stacks, but a little afraid of each other, and, and they're a lot more passive than you normally expect a lot of times. They're, they're trying to say that's what happened here, and not uh, soft playing or collusion. For the record, they also both denied that they had pieces of one another. So we'll, we'll never know the truth on that one. But I'm going to play you the live stream of these three hands. The first one was the King Jack and King Ten hand. And I I have to say that something just doesn't look right with this. Cause you have King Jack suited, which admittedly isn't that good of a hand in no limit. Because King Jack is what's known as a trap hand. Um, in limit, it's a little bit better because you can't lose as much with it. But uh, King Jack's known as a trap hand in no limit where it's dominated by so many other hands. There's so many ways you can hit a piece of the flop with it and then be stuck in for a lot of money and in reality be drawing very thin or dead. So King Jack's suited is a little bit better for the suited aspect, but you know it doesn't gain you that much. So... You could say on one hand that maybe the guy just doesn't like King Jack, and since they're trying to play conservatively with the other guy blinding himself out, uh, I still don't like it, not even calling a raise from the small blind to the big blind three-handed when you're in the big blind, you know, of course, with position, with King Jack suited. So here comes that hand. I'm not saying that he is, but I think the two of them are just confident in their games and where they're at right now, that they're just going to bide their time and really not go out of their way to try and take him out and just kind of let it happen naturally. You're going to see a King-10, King-Jack battle here. Yeah, we are. So you see the commentators are expecting it. They're they're expecting that it's not, <laughs> not going to be a fold here. And these guys got some very similar stacks. and uh... Wow. I think that just proved that they are content to just w- wait... So the commentator's surprised right there. They can see the whole cards. Very surprised seeing the raise from the small blind with King-10 off and the fold from the big blind with King-Jack suited, saying that they're content just letting Tyler bust. 
But come on, it's King Jack suited to a small blind raise. I mean, at least three bet him and then uh, fold if he comes over the top or something. But uh, <laughs> to just to fold King Jack suited. I mean, think of, when have you ever folded King Jack suited in the big blind to a single raise? How many times have you done that? Have you ever even done it in a full table game with a tight player raising and it folding to you? That's a very tough hand to fold to one player raising and you're the last one to act. Very tough, especially with the suited part of it. Very tough. I folded King Jack offsuit in the big blind before when a tight player has raised early position and I'm playing a no limit tournament. I've done that before. But suited, I, I can't see myself folding that. Small blind, big blind, never, absolutely never would I fold that to a raise. So that's already very, very suspicious. Even if you know, even if you say, well, maybe they're trying to wait out the other guy busting. There's only so far you can go with that to where it's uh, suspicious. So here comes the next hand in the stream. And again, you can download this yourself and watch it. Of course, on the radio, you can't actually see what's happening here. But... Uh, Getting to the next hand, which is the 6-6 and 6-deuce hand. And I'll describe what's happening here. Oh, got to the wrong place. Sorry about that. Here we go. I'm talking about a hand. I'm not talking about a Well, then you can't lose a tournament if you fold. Yeah, man. That's table talk here in the background. So, by the way, that's uh, that's actually Blake Bond bugging Tyler start playing some hands. He, he, this guy likes to talk at the table. And that's interesting because, now, yes, he does like to jabber away at the table and kind of uh, needle his opponents, but he's saying start playing some hands, and that would make it sound like he's not as happy about Tyler not playing hands as they claimed after the controversy started here. Because if you have a player doing something wrong at the table with you, wouldn't you shut your mouth and let them keep doing it wrong? Would you ever correct them and say, no, 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 start doing something different and start telling them why they should be doing something different? So that that already made me think here from, from hearing that, that uh, while these two definitely thought they were superior players to the third guy, and might have been, I, I don't think necessarily that... Uh, that's all this was about. Now you need cards three-handed? A card. One. Like an act. Yeah, so that's... Uh, I'm not sure if you heard the whole thing. I'm going to play this again. He was taunting Tyler Casper about why he didn't play hands. And Tyler Casper said, I would if I got something other than seven deuce. And then he says, oh, you need hands now to play three-handed? They got another walk, huh? It's a true statement, isn't it? No, it's not. You could lose the tournament if you fold every hand. I'm talking I'm about a hand. I'm not talking about a hand. Well, true. Then yeah, you can't yeah. lose a tournament if you fold. You got me, yeah. Now start playing some hands. All right. <laughs> Give me something better than seven dudes. Now you need cards three-handed? A card. One. Like a jack. Oh. Jack high or something. So he's trying to almost bully the guy into... Making him play hands. I don't know if you're happy the guy's blinding himself off. You keep your mouth closed. 
I once played, this is actually in Aruba, when I, I'm embarrassed to admit it that UB paid my way there. It's just as the uh, scandal was unfolding, but hadn't been proven yet, the AP scandal. But uh, they, they gave me a free seat to Aruba because of how much I've been playing on AP. And to my uh, direct, uh, direct right, or sorry, my, yeah, it was my direct right. Um, there was a girl who somehow took like a small amount of money and won like two big satellites to win this seat, which was amazing because she was the most like terrible loose passive player I had seen in a long time. Um, just super passive, and um, I shouldn't say loose, but tight passive. To where she got down to like one and a half blinds, and still wasn't shoving in. She finally shoved in with pocket eights when she she was down to one and a half blind. Before that, it was fold, 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 fold. Even when it was open folded to her, she was never shoving. But anyway, when I noticed how passive she was and how easy she was to run off hands and how easy it was to read her just from her play, not even from her expressions, what do you think? Do you think I said, hey, you know, you should start shoving it in more, your, your stack's getting too short? Of course not. I kept my mouth closed because it was a bad player at the table. I didn't want to help them be better and beat me. I liked the fact that I had this person that was so predictable sitting right next to me. So, when this is happening here, in this tournament, if they're happy that this guy is folding too much, why needle him about it? Let's go on here with the hand itself. Again, Blake working his magic. Like I said, I th- think it was, you know, they're very comfortable, and you know, he he's 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 comfortable with his stack and where he's so at now right Bla- now. And Blake has pocket sixes, and he just raised in the uh, small blind, and uh, Mark Sandness is going to call in the big blind. Really wants to see Casper's bust. Actually, I think he I think he was just he, I think he just completed it with sixes. It was hard to tell. Because it's not exactly a very sharp broadcast, but I think I think he just completed it with sixes, completed from the small blind, which is strange by itself. That's true, and um, Mark Sandis just checked with the six deuce. And Casper's hasn't really been playing a whole lot of hands, and Blake now is turning on the turning on the charm a little bit, hoping to get Casper's to be a little bit more active. Yeah, it does say on the screen that is what happened. So first, first Blake Bond does not raise with the sixes from the small blind, and you know, why why would you not do that? And then. The flop comes six four deuce. Blake checks. Mark bets. Blake check raises. So he check raises from eighty thousand to four hundred thousand. Mark calls. It's now a pretty decent sized pot here, four hundred thousand each on the flop. And um, the pre-flop is like 80k. So Blake Bond goes all in for 2.8 million. Mark Sandness would have to call his entire stack. He has 500,000 less than Blake Bond does. Thinking, looks at him, says, "Wow." 
looks at him again, looks at him again, and folds. Now, that was a pretty quick fold. This was not edited down. This was not compressed. I know in that spot, I wouldn't say I'm calling every time there, because six-deuce can be in bad shape when someone's going to go all in on six-deuce-four, especially when the person just checks to you from the, or, or just completes to you from the small blind. They can literally have anything. They can have three-five or a straight. Um, they could have pocket-fours, pocket-deuces, pocket-sixes, six-four. So six-deuce, other than four-deuce, is the worst hand here, other than either a bluff or an overpair that's being slow played pre-flop. But still, keep in mind that the pot at this point is already quite large. You only have 2.3 million in your stack. The pot is like, I think, 900k at this point. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad fold, but he made it pretty quickly. I would think about that one. I would I would sit there and think about that. There's no harm in thinking because uh, he's all in already. There's no more information you're giving away. It's not like you're thinking a long time about calling a big turn bet. This is calling an all in. So there's no there's no penalty for thinking in any way. But he made the decision pretty quickly. He and he did keep glancing at uh, Blake Bond's face. I wouldn't go as far as some people said on 2 plus 2, like that he shot him a a look. I didn't see any looks being shot, but I did see Blake Bond looking directly at Mark Sandness. And Mark Sandness kept kind of like looking down, looking up, looking down, looking up at him, and then folded pretty quickly. Interesting. Now, down to the last hand, let me put the commentary on this. So they, they just showed each other their hands. And when he saw he was crushed by sixes, he, that's when he got up and said, oh, ho, 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 I'm the greatest ever. Oh. Oh. Huh? Now, keep in mind, um, it's not like these two are completely chopping. It's not like these two don't care who wins. They, they do want to win, no matter what. So it, it's not like uh, neither of them cares who wins between the two of them. Uh, but if they traded a percentage then uh, it is a lot easier to slow play your opponent. It's also a lot easier to fold if you know your opponent is your friend and wouldn't shove all in on you without something really good. If you say, hey, my, my buddy would never do this to me. If my buddy's going all in, that means he has something. So... What Sandness may have been thinking is, okay, I don't like this spot getting this big check raise on me, but I'll wait till the turn. If I fill up on the turn, I'll put it in. If I don't, and he still shoves on me or makes a big bet, I'm folding. And I know, I know because he's my buddy, he won't do that. I'm not saying that's what he was thinking. I'm saying that that's, that's a possibility of what he was thinking if they are doing what they were accused of. I will say when he jumped up and said, ho, 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 wow, wow, I'm, I'm so good, I'm the best. I think that was a genuine reaction. If you watch it, it does seem like a genuine reaction, like he's proud of himself for making this lay down. So I, I don't think it's like there's so much of a team that they don't really care and they have to put on a show for the third guy. I think, I think they're really trying to beat each other, but at the same time, it's very possible that uh, they both know that the other's not going to 
put a huge move on the other like this. Let's move on to the final hand here. The queen nine hand against uh, deuce five. The reason there's a pause here is I'm trying to uh, look for the right place in the video. Right? Scroll to the right place, that is. At this point, he goes, I just took 600,000 off Caspers in the last couple of orbits because mm-hmm. he's folding. Yep. He's like, we're, you know, I, I'm in the process of dwindling the guy down. I'm not going to sit and battle the guy with the same stack as me. So, by the way, this is uh, apparently the owner of the Midstakes Poker Tour who's now making commentary on the criticism by this point in the broadcast, because this is like half an hour later from the last hand I played. A lot of people on Twitter were angry and criticizing this and claiming it was soft playing or collusion. So, uh, I think they, this is the Medium Stakes Poker Tour owner who was uh, on the broadcast at this point. I I didn't hear enough of it to know this for sure. But uh, this is him trying to explain it and defend these guys. And it makes sense. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier, right? right? I mean, that's, um, it, you know, it, you ought, even before the, 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 the plays, um, you know, I had been talking about now that Blake and Mark, after Mark won that big pot and had caught up to Blake, I had said, okay, clearly if you watch the two of them, they're both very comfortable with where they're at. They're both very comfortable with their experience level over Casper's. Odds are they're probably just going to sit back and wait for Casper's to possibly self-implode. Yeah, I would reference it more as slow playing versus anything else. So that's supposedly from the uh, Mistakes Poker Tour owner. I'm Going by what someone else told me, I, I didn't hear this myself, but uh, slow playing. Now, slow playing, is, I think what they were trying to say is it's not slow playing is really a term about a hand. Slow playing is like uh, you have pocket aces, the flop is uh, ace six four, that you don't uh, raise a lot on the flop because you have such a monster hand, you want to let someone hang themselves on the Turner River. That's what real slow playing is. What they mean by slow playing here is that they're actually trying to keep the pots very small until this third guy busts because they're watching him hang himself anyway. That's what they're trying to say here. But that, I think that's the owner of the Midstakes Poker Tour, and if the, I, I just don't think that's a good thing to have happening here. And I, I don't think necessarily they came to this conclusion on their own. But I'm, I'm going to keep playing here now. This also happens to be the third hand. Just as they're saying this, then the third controversial hand came up, where Mark Sandis again in the big blind with 2-5 suited, Blake Bond with queen-9 offsuit in the small blind. Again, he just calls, which is also strange. Again, you know, three-handed, just to, just to call there. But you could say that's just his strategy, to disguise his hands. But he just calls from the small blind with a queen-9 offsuit. Sandness yeah, checks yeah. with so, a two five suited and, and, and the flop it, comes out. You, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's it's queen six about, five. Like when people have a... so bond in the small blind flopping top pair on a very dry board queen six five rainbow checks. Good Mark Sandness yeah. with bottom pair checks. These guys are at final tables constantly, right? And it's yeah. a, a lot of people that are watching this sitting home at Twitter constantly. <laughs> 
like to bash, like to hate the guys who have success. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It wasn't checked all the way down. It was, a, it was bet by uh, 100K. I missed this. It was, I, so I guess what they said on 2 plus 2 was wrong. Um, it was a, a 100K bet by Sandness on the flop and then a call. Right, and that's and that's I think the turn you know, is a jack guys, you know, check. Blake and Mark were reading some of the the things because they have friends here yep. who are on their phones, you know, reading the tweets check and again. fueling the fire, <laughs> right? Yep. And uh, um, and and you know, like I mentioned, they were extremely offended by it being. And, and his logic makes sense, and it's and it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. So check check again on the river, and you heard some of the commentary there. So check check, and uh, Bond wins it with top pair. So basically, Bond flopped top pair, check called, and then they both checked it down, despite him having uh, top pair the whole way. Sandus bet his bottom pair on the flop, 100K, which wasn't a large bet at that point. They were playing uh, um, 4080 blinds, so 100K is a tiny bet. And uh, they just checked it down. So that wasn't quite a all-the-way check down, but it was close. 100K bet, which is a tiny bit more than the big blind, is not much of a bet. And that's the whole way it was bet. Uh, someone saying that maybe the Queen-9 by Bond was being checked down to have Sandness hang himself, have him bluff at it. I don't buy that. I buy that if you have such a tough hand to beat, such a tough hand to suck out on, that uh, you want to let the other guy hang himself. I also would buy if you're afraid that you're against a very tricky player, that if you fire your top pair medium kicker the whole way, that uh, you won't know what to do if he raises you. So you want to keep the pot small, out of position. Makes sense, too. But after check, tiny bet call, check, check, you know, why not fire the river? So that was kind of strange as well. So here's what I think. Here's what I think about the situation. It's not um it's not very clear collusion or soft play. We're only talking about three hands here. But I will say there's a marked difference between the play while Tyler Casper was there and when he wasn't. To play this cautiously all that time and then shove it in with sixes and fours is very suspicious. Very suspicious. If you're that cautious of a player for this long, you're not happy to get it in, heads up on the first hand, with sixes or fours pre-flop. It's not like they both flop sets. It's not like pre one has aces, one has kings. It's sixes and fours. If you've been cautious all this time, when your head's up, you're not happy getting it in with sixes and fours. <laughs> Someone noticed in the chat room, by the way, the clock is saying 3.01 p.m. That's a little bit off. I'm not sure how that happened either. I have to uh, see what's going on with that. <laughs> but at least it's working. But anyway... Clearly they both you know, markedly changed their style of play once the third guy was gone. 
Clearly there wasn't all that much caution that either of them had when they were heads up, despite the very large money difference. We're talking about first place being 91k, second place being 50k, third place 33k, and, and for some reason they were both happy to get it in with sixes and fours. So, um, I think there was something to the accusations. It may not have been a direct, hey, let's rip this guy off, hey, let's cheat this guy, hey, let's soft play against this guy, hey, let's collude against this guy. It may be that these two, after playing enough times together, after becoming friendly, just kind of had an unspoken way of playing with one another, like, you don't screw with my pots, I don't screw with yours, you don't bluff me, I won't bluff you. If it looks like we have a third guy at the table who isn't very good, uh, let's let him hang himself, let's not bust each other. That sort of thing. I saw this sort of thing happening in cash games at Commerce, plenty, in the past, where there's not direct collusion, but a lot of soft playing, where once I fold the two Asians at the table, check, 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 all the way down, and someone chose top pair, and the other one chose uh, middle pair. And at limit, then you, know, you never do that. So this really may have been the case of we're not going to get in each other's way ever until we're heads up. I do have to say it's a little bit suspicious why they were both happy to get all their chips in with uh, sixes and fours with such a big difference between first and second place, one almost double of the other. Uh, Why they were so happy to do that if they did not have pieces of one another. Unfortunately, it's hard to tell. There's no way to check whether they had pieces of one another unless someone knew for sure. These three hands were suspicious, but not so terrible that you have to say that uh, they're definitely collusion. But I have to say, it all adds up to something looking kind of shady there. And I think it really was a case of the two of us think we're good, the two of us know each other, the two of us are not going to knock each other out of this tournament unless we absolutely have to. Now, they knew it was on TV. They knew it or at least a live stream. So, like, uh, they couldn't get set over set and check it down or it looked terrible. So they knew they'd have to play out some hands, like the sixes, the sixes and the six deuce, they couldn't check that all the way down. Then there would be 100% collusion. But uh, they, they may have had kind of an unspoken agreement, or maybe even a spoken agreement, that they're going to really stay out of each other's way as much as they possibly can. So I, I would be pissed too if I was that third guy. I don't know if much can be done about this. It's one of these things that you'd have to have multiple instances of to do anything about because it's kind of marginal. But I, I have to side with the people who say something was shady here. All right, moving on. Not a story we're going to talk about a long time, but a former light heavyweight boxer has been arrested. The reason that's of any consequence is because he actually was a light heavyweight champion at one time. He had a uh, 1996 bronze medal in light heavyweight in boxing. And his name is Anthony Tarver. He played poker occasionally, too. From reports I've read, he was a very nice guy at the poker table whenever he played. Uh, What he wasn't so nice to was the win. 
I, I'm sorry, his name was uh, Antonio Tarver. Sorry about that. People in the uh, people in the forum corrected me on that one. Antonio Tarver. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, he was being held on $215,425 bail following his arrest, which uh, just occurred on a warrant issued in June of 2013 in Las Vegas over $200,000 that he took in markers from the win. Also, um, state law in Nevada allows prosecutors to collect a 10% processing and prosecution fee with any settlement. So technically he owes 220000 and his bail is almost 220000 of 215425 uh, It does say in this article from Yahoo Sports that most cases are resolved before charges are filed, that often the, the arrest is just kind of a way to force them to pay. And um, sometimes when the amount is paid as bail, they just take that money and say, okay, that's it, we'll just drop the whole thing at this point. So it sounds like what they're willing to do, just from this bail amount, is uh, if he posts bail of $215,425, which is kind of an odd number for bail. Almost always bail is set at some kind of round number. They, they never make it 215425 They would just make it you know 200000 or 225000 wouldn't be this weird number. So I think that the prosecutor's office probably decided this is what they're happy to take, or maybe the wind said we'll take this. So they probably said the bail is this, and if he pays it, they'll probably let him go free. That's my guess. But uh, he did win a bronze medal in 1996 in Atlanta. His professional career, 30 wins and 6 losses. He even was in the movie Rocky Balboa, which wasn't very good, part of the Rocky series played a heavyweight boxer. He has uh, been a commentator for Showtime Sports Boxing, and he is 45 years old now. So I know, real shock that an athlete did not manage his money well, and was broke and owed money. But the casinos, you really don't want to screw the casinos. For some reason, it seems like the win is involved in these often. I, I don't know if the win is a popular destination for celebrities just because of its status, but I hear a lot about whenever there's a story about a celebrity owing markers to a casino, it always seems to be the win. The last one I remember was Charles Barkley, who owed 400000 in markers and didn't pay them. And rather than arrest him, they shamed him in the media. And he immediately paid up, probably as an advance from uh, TNT, or T-Mobile. <laughs> Charles Barkley is fortunate enough to have the big personality that gets him spots on commercials and TV shows to where he has an endless stream of income long after his basketball career was over because he has a big-time gambling problem. And the reason he didn't pay the win, I'm sure, is because he was busto. But he has a stream of income coming in, so he probably went to one of his employers and said, hey, you know, advance me that 400 grand," and they did. So, public shaming wouldn't have worked in this case because Antonio Tarver isn't a big enough name, as you see, I called him Anthony, to shame him in the media. It has to be someone like Charles Barkley who uh, wouldn't want his reputation ruined like that, and who they also probably figured could come up with it. I don't know if this Antonio Tarver can come up with it. Like, where is he going to get it from? I don't know what he's even doing for money these days. You know, it always amazes me, and not just for celebrities, but just 
why go into a casino and gamble very large sums of money where you know the odds are very much against you? You know the house always wins. You don't have to be a gambling expert to know that. Um, in pit games, you know, to, I don't know if he played pit games. I'm assuming he did. Now, at least in sports, you can delude yourself into believing that you know more about the sport than, or you have a, a good feeling or a good system that other people don't have. At least in sports, you, you kind of control your own destiny, even though it's a very tough thing to beat. But uh, you can't sit down in blackjack or craps. In blackjack, you can if you count cards. But other than that, you can't sit down as a normal player in those games and, and ever win, not even in the long run, but even in the short long run. So why would you ever gamble just like large sums of money? What do you think is going to happen if you're there for long enough? But these people just don't think. They just don't think. Jay Stat in the chat room saying, In the old days, an unpaid Vegas marker resulted with being buried in a hole in the desert. Someone else saying in chat, Vegas was way more fun when the mob owned everything. I admit I would have been scared to count cards in Vegas when the mob owned everything. I would have been very... I wouldn't have done it. I would have been too scared. I would have been too scared that I would end up in one of those ditches. So even though they weren't as good at catching card counters back then, uh, it was a lot less safe to do that. Once the corporations took over... There was a period where it was both safe and easy to get away with, and now it's safe and hard to get away with. But someone is saying in chat, they are degenerates, plain and simple, and that's what it is. It just, I, I just kind of wonder what their mindset is going in, because people don't usually walk in a casino saying, I want to lose my money. They walk into a casino believing they're going to win, looking for the excitement of winning. I'm just uh, amazed that people bet that much to where it was, you know, it can wipe them out in a game they just really have no chance in. Um, Beer and Poker posting a story of a guy who bet 500000 on the Super Bowl and claims he shouldn't have to pay because he was drunk. <laughs> Let's look at this story really fast. The downtown Grand has been open for just a few months and it already is facing a lawsuit. Mark Johnson, Johnston, says the resort cheated him out of 500000 which he lost gambling during Super Bowl weekend. Johnson, who said he had too much to drink before wagering that money, says the resort should not have let him gamble. Gambling, gaming re- regulations state a casino can be disciplined for allowing a visibly drunk person to gamble. I feel like they picked my pockets, he said. I feel like they took a drunk guy, let a drunk guy walking down the street, and you reach in his pockets and grab all his money. You know, I don't agree with these lawsuits. I think every person is responsible for themselves and only if the casino intentionally gets someone intoxicated should they be held liable. Or if they intentionally take advantage of the guy when he's drunk, like he's really, really sloshed and they say, hey man, uh, you know, come on over here. Like if they try to get him to gamble, if they, if they try to put any kind of pressure on him to gamble, forget pressure, even encouragement to gamble when he's super, super drunk. I can understand. But if he's just sitting here at the table playing blackjack or betting on sports and just hammering down the cocktails one after another and then eventually gets so drunk that he just loses his inhibitions and bets all his money and loses it all. That's his fault. That's called taking responsibility for your own actions, facing the consequences of your own actions. If you cannot control yourself when you drink, do not gamble while you drink. Period. And if you do, you suffer the consequences. By the way, 
What if this guy won while he was there? Would he be suing them? Of course not. So he's trying to free roll them, basically. If he had won, he'd be saying nothing. When he lost, that's when he wants his money back. You can even say that uh, maybe he had this idea in the first place, which I doubt, but uh, if they were to rule in their favor here, then everybody could just go there, get drunk. If they win, keep the money. If they lose, sue them. And then win. So he should not win this. By the way, it doesn't say he lost at sports betting. It just says he lost at gambling during Super Bowl weekend. Probably wasn't sports betting. They, most casinos don't like to take sports bets like that. A few of them do specialize in large Super Bowl bets, but most of them want to control the amount they take in, so they limit their risk on either side. I don't know about this downtown grand. Harris Atlantic City is being sued for alleged assault against their guests by security. And I had to say, when I first heard about this story, I paused for a second. I was like, wow, that could have been me. Because I have had some tense moments at Caesars Properties. I've had tense moments where I've argued with them at the World Series. I've had tense moments where something went wrong in the hotel and they're not uh, making it right. Uh, I once, I remember once I got really mad at Caesars when they disabled my key card. It wasn't one of these things where it went bad because my phone was, uh, you know, my my cell phone made the card go bad or just went bad by itself. They actually disabled it because they had a, it turned out they had an error in the uh, computer of when they showed me checking out. But I didn't know that yet, but I assume that's what had happened because it already happened the day before in my stay. And it, right around the same time of day it occurred again when they told me they had fixed it. But this was terrible timing because I had just went swimming with uh, Benjamin's mother and Benjamin. And you know, Benjamin's my three-year-old son. At the time, he was like two. And we, we went up to the room. Everybody's dripping wet. Uh, Benjamin's cold, especially in the uh, over-air-conditioned hallways. I, I whip out my key card to get in the room so we can take off our bathing, shoots and sh- bathing suits and shower, and uh, the key card doesn't work. So that's already crappy. So uh, the two of them stayed there by the room. I told them I'd go down really fast. Someone asked, you know, why don't you just use the courtesy phone and have them send up a key? You do that, you'll be waiting half an hour, especially at Caesar. So I went down, go to the desk, and first there's like a little like key desk which Caesars has, which remakes keys for you. Well, that was closed, even though it was like the middle of the day. It was closed for some reason. So I go over to the uh, the closest front desk. That was actually the one that was for the tower we were staying in, the uh, desk for the Augustus and Octavius Towers. And I went up to that desk, and there's two employees there, and they're helping customers check in, and both of them are taking a very long time. And both of them are are dealing with some kind of problem at check-in, and I I can tell it's going to be a long time. In the meantime, my two-year-old son is shivering up there, and I know that the key has gone bad because of Caesar's making a mistake rather than uh, uh, my own fault of putting it next to my cell phone or something. So I try to get their attention and try to tell them what's going on and say, look, it it takes them like 30 seconds to remake the key. I say, can you put one of these guys on hold for a second and uh, and do this for me? And the first one was so nasty to me. The first one was just really obnoxious. 
Sir, you need to wait your turn. See, can't, can't you see I'm helping him? Can't you see we're in the middle of something? You need to wait, and then when, you know, when it's your turn, then we'll remake your key card. And I'm trying to explain about the two-year-old shivering in the hallway. They didn't care. So finally I went over to the second person who uh, kind of gave me a funny look and then was like, uh, okay, fine, and did it. So that ended that, but I, I was already very agitated and starting to, I didn't say yell, but I was already starting to speak to them in an agitated voice. Now keep in mind, they were behind a desk, so it's not like I was physically getting in their face. I couldn't if I wanted to, which I wouldn't have. I, I never physically get in employees' faces. But um, when I heard about this story in Atlantic City, you're going to notice some similarities to the story I just told. And at first it scared me, like, wow, I wonder if next time this happens, uh, security's going to come running over and tackle me and beat me up. And the story's even worse sounding in that not only was the guy attacked, but so were his wife and 16-year-old daughter. But as frequently occurs when these things are in the media, it's not what it appears. So let me... uh, I'm going to play you a video of this. And I'll describe to you what, with the story of a violent I'll describe to you what's happening during the video. There is a video of it. And the video has no sound, but I'll describe to you what's happening in the video. And then I'll uh, give you my take on the whole thing. The scuffle that started over room keys. Good evening, I'm Peter Bush. And I'm Lindsay Logue. A Cape Coral family says they were physically attacked and wrongfully thrown out of an Atlantic City casino. This is in 2012. And the whole altercation was caught on camera. Tonight we got our hands on the nearly 200-page lawsuit. NBC. So this happened in 2012. The reason it's news in 2014 is because nobody knew about it till the lawsuit was filed which was just filed and a, um, a TV station got a hand a, a, get their hands on a 200-page lawsuit. I don't know how you could have a 200-page lawsuit over this. It's uh, a lot of detail in those 200 pages. Some lawyers just go crazy. I, I think the wife here is a lawyer, which is probably why she had the time to put 200 pages into this. Two's Holly Hojack picks up the story now. Holly. Surveillance video shows each member of the Brins family thrown to the ground by Harris Casino employees. Tonight, Renee Bins tells me this lawsuit is to punish the hotel and casino for what they did to her family. One second, John Bins is on his feet. Surveillance video shows him taken to the ground by three Harris Casino employees. According to the Bins, all over faulty room key cards. So, from that little clip I saw there... It looked terrible. It looks like the guy is just kind of standing there with the managers of the hotel, and then security just jumps on him and, and tackles him to the ground. Now, here's his wife speaking. Imagine if there was a real problem, what would happen? Earlier today, Renee Bins and her family filed a nearly 200-page lawsuit against Caesar Entertainment Corporation, Harris Casino, and sister companies in New Jersey and Florida. The family says they were, quote, humiliated, beaten, wrongfully detained, and evicted from the Atlantic City Casino back in August of 2012. Tonight, they want monetary compensation. Punishing them. Now, I, they showed a clip right there of uh, the wife here. And what they showed here was her approaching when they were going after her husband, trying to interfere, and then someone came up behind her and just kind of grabbed her from behind by both arms and pulled her back. 
they had not tackled her, they just kind of grabbed her and was slowly pulling her back. And as they were pulling her back, she actually kicked at one of the people who was uh, on her husband. She was actually kicking at them. So, that right there already casts doubt upon her claim that they attacked her, because they're just trying to pull her out of the way, and then she tried to kick one of the employees there, who was dealing with her husband. Um, and the only way that can, they can be punished. In the lawsuit, it's says John asked for a manager after repeated issues with the hotel room keys. At that point, he was told he was no longer a guest at the hotel. You can see the dispute turns into a takedown at the front desk. John says he was, quote, punched, beaten, and taken down by force by three Harris Casino employees, all while his wife and daughter watched. Renee says she and her daughter went to grab their belongings from the room. That's when they claimed they were... Okay, so, um, it actually, I'm sorry... It actually wasn't when they were... I guess she wasn't going towards the, the husband. I just noticed this now. She was actually walking in a certain direction. It may have been towards the room. She, they were walking in a certain direction, and um, they grabbed... As I said, they grabbed the woman and started to pull her back, hadn't tackled her, and then got in the way of the daughter, who's 16. Attacked. I mean, at one point, she's leaning against the wall eating ice cream, and then she's taken down in now they do show then the the daughter was gotten an altercation with security and then they actually tackled her and she's very small i i think that was definitely an overreaction to tackle look like a 110 pound girl uh, but um she was acting very aggressively towards them in this video she was and there's actually a full version of this video you can watch it's like i think two and a half minutes i'm not going to play it here obviously because you there's no sound, so a video with no sound is terrible for radio. I'm playing the news report instead. But uh, you can actually see her starting to try to put hands, this is the daughter now, on the security, and that's the point when they attacked her. A highly offensive manner. The entire Vince family was detained until Atlantic City police arrived. Andrea suffered a fractured nose. Tonight, Renee says justice needs to be served. Seeing what they do to your child, so wrong on so many levels. Now, today's lawsuit was filed on behalf of Andrea, the 17-year-old at the time. Now, Renee and her husband will also be filing lawsuits in the coming days. Tonight, we did reach out to Harris Casino and the Division of Gaming in Atlantic City. We have not heard back. Live in the studio, Holly Hojek, NBC2. Holly. Yeah, okay, so that's the story here. And I don't know. I, I think both were at fault. First of all, the way it escalated was really weird. If you watch the video, and I, I'm talking more about the unedited video, which you can find uh, you can find on the web. I think it's even in the thread I posted about it on the Flying Stupidity Forum. It's not a YouTube. It's actually a video up on the uh, pressofatlanticcity.com site. But I will say that the guy appears to be acting aggressively before getting tackled. He's in front of two black guys, not black guys, but guys in black suits. Um, and right before they tackle him, you see him starting to raise his arms up. Like, you can't hear what's being said, but what you see in this video is the guy's just looking very aggressive right up in their face, and then lifts his arms up, and seems to be making some kind of motion, and they spring into action immediately, 
and jump on him, and then right when they jump on him, like three security guards who are obviously already there watching this go down in case something happened, then tackled him. So the question is, what did he do to make them tackle him? Was it that they overreacted because he threw up his arms just as a gesture during a conversation and they took it as him trying to throw a punch? And then security jumped in just because they saw something happening and and felt they had to do something and were overzealous and overaggressive? Was it that? Or did he make some kind of verbal threat to them? Was it even possible he said something like, I'm carrying a gun, you better give me the card or I'm going to reach in my pocket and get it out? Or, Or is it possible he said... If you don't give me the card, I'm going to I'm going to punch your lights out right now. Like the fact that we couldn't hear any audio here is huge because it's really really strange that they would just attack him like this. And it seemed to be precipitated by whatever motion he made where he moved up his arms like that abruptly. Now, I will tell you in the few times I've ever been in any kind of uh, situation in a casino, I've been very careful. Like when I've been caught counting cards and security surrounds me and tells me I need to leave, I keep my hands in my pockets or folded up or at least all the way down to my sides. I I talk softly. I, I talk calmly because I know that I don't want to give them any reason to punch me, to grab me, to throw me on the ground, to take me in the back room and beat me up. I'm very careful that I know that if anything does happen, that the video will show that I didn't ask for it in any way. But this guy was the opposite. This guy was very aggressive. This guy was waving his arms. This may have been a case where they wrongly took his arm motions for for him throwing a punch. You have a really, really, really aggressive, angry guy. And, And by the way, this happened... The mistake was on the hotel's part to precipitate all this. Uh, his key card stopped working, and then when he tried to have it remade, they said, sorry, you're not a guest at the hotel. So he just, like, fell out of the system. Which is it's kind of funny that this happened at Harrah's, because uh, this is a, a typical Harrah's thing to occur. Anything with Caesars, I believe, where there's some kind of incompetence like this, where the, uh, there's some kind of screw-up, especially related to the computer. So I believe this happened. And I don't think Harrah's has denied this happened. So you have to understand the family's pissed. They want to get in their room, and they're told, not only don't your keys work, but you're not even a guest here. And they're like, what? No, our stuff is up here. Now, what I would have said at that point is, is look, you know, take me in here. I'll, I'll have, have security take me up there. I'll show you all my stuff. That's what I would have said right then. Um, he must have not said that. He, 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 but he was really, really agitated, really, really, really wound up. And as I said, right before he was attacked, was gesturing with his hands, or either gesturing, or maybe he was lifting it to punch them. I don't know. You, you couldn't hear. But it is possible that they really felt they were in danger. They really felt the guy was going to punch them. And an angry guy who's like gesturing his arms and in your face, you know, he lifts his arm. It's easy to grab him and say, no, 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 you're not going to punch me. And then once security sees that, then they jump in, and then the whole thing degenerates from there. Now, regarding the wife and kid, um, I don't know where they were trying to go. Maybe they were trying to go to the room and get their stuff. It doesn't make much sense, though, if they had keys that didn't work, why they could just waltz up to the the room. But uh, that's their story. But you do see the wife starting to walk somewhere in the video. Then a guy getting behind her and kind of pulling her away. But again, he he is putting hands on her and moving her, but he's not 
doing anything that's going to harm her physically. He's just moving her. And nobody likes, you know, nobody likes as an adult to have another adult grab you and move you like you were a little kid, but uh, at the same time, she wasn't being hurt here. But she was being kind of moved out, and that's when she went nuts and, and then started trying to kick somebody else that was in front of them. I think uh, they they may have pulled her by the uh, the altercation with her husband. She started trying to kick them, which is uh, a little suspect in itself. And you'll notice the daughter was really also trying to... Uh, when they were going up to her, she was already... Uh, you couldn't hear it, but it looked like she was saying, don't you put your hands on me, don't you touch me, and it was like like flinging her arms at them. And I think either made contact with one or came very close to making contact with them. Now, obviously this is a very stressful moment. Nobody likes seeing their husband or father attacked like that by casino security, especially if he has not thrown a punch. And the truth is, he did not throw a punch. I think this lawsuit might have some merit, unless there's something we're missing here, because he had not thrown a punch. Even if they took it wrong and thought he was throwing a punch when he wasn't, that's not an excuse. That's not an excuse to attack the guest at that point. Uh, You see how it happened, but it doesn't mean you can just do this. If you're going to grab someone thinking they're throwing a punch at you, they better really be throwing a punch, and if it's not clear they were, then you're going to be liable. So I do think it's very possible that they mistook him for throwing a punch, tackled him, and then it all degenerated from there. I think uh, the video does show that there is at the very least an overreaction by Harris Atlantic City security. I'll also say that uh, these security guards, a lot of times they're looking for a fight. They're looking for something exciting at work because these security guards, most of their day is just sitting around, literally, just sitting and watching, waiting. It's a very boring job. Uh, it's, it's not like working and uh, the Ocean's Eleven heist is going on and, and you're trying to stop it. This, most of the time, casino security is very boring and the most exciting thing you get to do is uh, eject drunks from the establishment or, or take people who've fallen asleep at slot machines and make them leave. That's uh, really the most exciting thing you typically do. Um, once in a while, some whack job comes in with a gun or something, but even that doesn't happen very often and when it does, it makes huge news. So for the most part, casino security is uh, is pretty boring, and uh, you know, some of the people who enter the security industry have the thuggish mentality where they they want to beat someone up, they they want to have a fight, they want to tackle someone. So they're they're just itching for the justification to do it. So they you know, they see someone starting to tangle with the employees, and it it just it snowballs from there. So I hope at the very least maybe this will wake up some of the casinos to train the security better and uh, bring down the physical violent force that they use with some guests even when they think it's marginally justified I, I think basically they should never do that if if uh, nobody is causing a direct danger and if uh, someone's in an argument with an employee uh, if no punches have been thrown then they should not be the first ones to tackle the person or anything like that. So, uh, I do think there is an overreaction here. But at the same time, I don't think the family's as innocent as it appears. I think they were making it worse once it started. And I think the guy very well might have confused them into thinking he was about to throw a punch with the way he was acting. So. 
Moving on to our next subject, if you want to call in 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also text that same number in 775. Get a text regarding the allegations of soft play and collusion from the 250 area code regarding the 6-6 and 4-4 hands where they went all in pre-flop heads up. The guy says to me, 4-4 versus 6-6, all in pre-flop heads up is standard, bruh. I don't know. To me, it's not standard. I, I guess you'll know that if we're heads up in anything but a terrible structured tournament. But I, I don't think I'm going to want to get all my chips in with sixes or fours pre-flop if we both have a decent stack, if we're both fairly deep. If you're short stack, yeah, I'm, I can't wait to get my money in with sixes or fours, but not if we've got any kind of uh, reasonable stack you know, between the two of us. So if you think I have sixes and we both have a big stack, just just pound me pre-flop. You'll knock me off of it. I promise you. Sinner saying it probably was a terribly structured tournament. I don't mean it had to be a wonderful structure. I mean, a terrible structured tournament is one where the, the blinds are just so high. I think we know the structure. Um, I think they were playing 40,000, 80,000 blinds at the time. And I think they each had something like... Oh, like I don't know what they had chip counts, but I think there's probably 8 million, 9 million chips in the tournament. So to me, that just sounds like uh, too much to shove in preflop. Especially if they're playing that cautiously. I'm not saying that never happens. I'm just saying that when you're super cautious the whole way, that's a weird way to get all the chips in. All right, so moving along here to our next subject... Shane Schlager. Shane Schlager. Pretty smart guy. Uh, I've interacted with him some over the years, both on the internet and in person. It hasn't happened much recently, but for a while in the World Series, he was always ending up at my table. And unfortunately, most of the time, this was in no limit events, not limit events. One time I got in a limit event, and uh, that I didn't mind having him there, because he's not a limit player, but... uh, all the other times is no limit, and he's a good no limit tournament player. So, wasn't happy to see him. And it also seemed like every time I made it deep in a no limit tournament, he made it deep, which actually confused me because I'm like, wow, every single time I'm deep here, Shane Schlager's right here too, and with a much bigger stack than mine. Wow, this guy must like me. He must be winning like millions of dollars. And then I go take a look at his IMD, not IMDb, uh, his uh, Hinted Mob DB. And while he was, was doing fairly well, um, it turned out that some of his biggest scores were the ones that I was there also deep with him, but just didn't make it as far. So it just seemed like we were making it deep in the same spots. Uh, but he always had many more chips than I did. Anyway, um, Shane Schlager has been active on social media. He tweets all the time. Uh, he posts on 2 Plus 2. He's known as Shaniac. Uh, I'm sure politically we're very different. Uh, Lifestyle-wise, we're very different. In fact, I know that for sure now after reading this piece. Uh, but I, I think he's a nice guy. I think he's generally a good and honest guy. And overall, I like him. Uh, he's he's always been known as like one of the potheads of poker. But But overall, I like him. He even appeared on one of the other radio shows I did, and he was a good guest. And as I said, maybe I'll try to get him on here. 
But he did a recent uh, article for Slate.com, which is, of course, a big site. It's not a poker site at all. And get to what he wrote here. He's actually admitting to actively smoking crack. How often do you see that? Especially someone who's not, you know, some guy on the street. This is a a respected member of, of a community, in this case the poker community, admitting he smokes crack and wrote about his experiences with it in the past and present. I'm not going to read the whole article. You can find it on Slate.com if you just Google Slate.com Schlager, S-C-H-L-E-G-E-R. You will find his article. But he writes at the beginning, I was taught how to cook and smoke crack when I was 21. It was in a high-rise hotel room on East 34th Street in Manhattan, and some friends from New Jersey, in town for the New Year's Eve fish shows at Madison Square Garden, showed me the technique to convert powder cocaine into its smokable counterpart. These upper-middle-class suburban kids seem to know every detail about the drug, from the minutia of proper pipe handling to the kinder, gentler euphemism for crack, hubbus. They knew how to cook HCL powder cocaine into a base, free base, as well as where to find the street version of the same drug, crack. Earlier that night, before I learned how to make free base, we had driven to someone's house in Patterson, New Jersey, and one of my friends went inside and bought a bag of ready-made smokable rocks. I sat shotgun on the way to the city while the backseat passenger took the wheel, allowing the driver to use both hands to take a hit off the pipe. Now, this is pretty detailed here, especially for, uh, uh, I think, 1999 when this occurred. My levels of ex- experimentation have varied since that night, from three months of daily usage in 1999, after that initial introduction, to a year or two of abstinence. I eventually settled into a seasonal habit. I smoked crack only during the winter months. <laughs> I guess he did it to keep warm. Followed by a less moderate phase in 2013. That is a less moderate phase in 2013. So he's saying in 2013 he hit the crack pipe pretty hard. I don't present these stories for shock value. On the contrary, I proceed with a lot of anxiety, knowing the potential to upset and alienate family members, friends, present or past business associates, future landlords, and anyone else who is likely to take a dim view of the information I'm volunteering. Good point he raises there. He's saying, I'm going to present a candid story of my crack usage, past and present. I'm going to put it on Slate.com, a pretty mainstream site. And pretty soon, everyone in my family, my friends, my landlords, my business associates, they're going to know I'm a crackhead. (laughs) Not something you want to advertise to the world, especially in the era of Google. But here he is doing it, pretty brave of him. And then he went on in the article to discuss... Um, his crack usage Very interesting read I can't say I agree with a lot of what he said there But uh, interesting that he would Come forward with this Especially someone uh, I mean this would be interesting from anyone But it was especially interesting from someone that we know In the poker community Um, Now in his Slate piece He did start off with what I felt was a stupid comment about the war on drugs. 
He said, um, this country's war on drugs could more accurately, more accurately be described as a systematic effort to marginalize immigrants, minorities, and poor people decade after decade. So I almost stopped reading when I saw that. Whether you are for or against the war on drugs, whether you think drugs should be legal or illegal, no matter what your position is on that, I don't believe the war on drugs to be a systematic effort to hurt immigrants, minorities, and poor people. This is not, uh, they didn't think this up to screw the poor. You may not like what they're doing. You may think it's ill-conceived. You may think it's ineffective. You may think drugs shouldn't be criminalized. But this is not an attempt to marginalize minorities and poor people. It's just not. That is typical hippie, super far-left garbage. But I kept reading because I like Shane and I was very interested in his story. And I was glad I did because after that he dropped the politicizing and just talked about his own life. I do give him credit for his honesty. Amazingly, at the end, he's not talking about how he's given it up, but he said he will probably be smoking less crack in 2014, but will still be smoking it. So... He's not saying, wow, I really let myself get careless with a crack in 2013, but that's it, I'm swearing it off, it's done. This is him saying, yeah, um, I kind of went too far with it last year, but this year I'll smoke less, but I'm going to continue with a crack. He said he was publishing uh, this article because he wanted to start a dialogue about drugs. He feels that drugs are not as bad as the media says they are. Uh, Some people think drugs are terrible. Some people think that uh, drugs are are just fine. There's no problem with them at all. And some people are kind of in the middle. I don't know. But uh, he claims in his article that uh, a lot of people don't want to look at the good side of drugs. And he's hoping that by coming forward and saying, not only was I a crack user for the past 15 years, I still am one, and I've been able to basically control myself, uh, that maybe people will be able to discuss that drugs can be okay. Now, I still feel like he's beating the maybe drugs are good drum too hard in this article. In this article, he basically says that he's handled drugs pretty well, he's handled the crack pretty well, that it has had a physical toll on him, that he has had some physical effects of it, and that's why he's cutting down. And, uh, you know, so he's not saying that he does crack with no repercussions, but he's saying that uh, he's been able to mostly handle it. He did mention having a friend that did become an addict and had to go to rehab and all that. Um, It is true that there are some fluke people who can do strong drugs like crack on an occasional and recreational basis and never suffer any kind of ill effects from it. Their health seems fine. Their family life is fine. It doesn't affect their work. It's it's almost like they're not doing it. It's like they can just go smoke the crack every so often, come back to their regular life and everything's fine. And they, they can do this for the long term and everything's fine. There are a few people who can do that. But that's not the vast majority. The reality is that drug addiction is a terrible problem in this country, and that harder drugs like crack have made a mess of a staggering number of lives. 
both the addicts themselves and their families. And this this is not a debate or an editorial about smoking pot or anything like that. I'm talking about hard stuff like crack that really, really has ruined and often quickly ruined people's lives. And it's not just your own life. It could be whoever cares about you, whoever's spending all the money to put you in rehab, whoever is supporting you after you fry your brain on drugs and, and can't live a productive life even after you've quit. The people who suffer after you die from overdoses. Now, it is true that some drug users, even crack users, can hide their habit for a while and appear to be in control. If they appear to be healthy, if they don't have financial issues, if they're holding a steady job, you know, one can almost conclude that their drug use has no negative consequences whatsoever. But it rarely stays that way. There's the tendency to use them more during life's more stressful moments. You know, when something bad happens you and you, you've been doing some kind of hard drug like crack, that's when you want to do it a lot of times, when, when there's a lot of stress. Uh, and then doing it more during the stressful moments then will often make those stresses worse because of the side effects of the drug usage, which then causes more drug use. For example, you're stressed out at work, you start doing a lot more drugs when you're home, then you start missing work because you're doing all these drugs, then work gets even harder and it's a vicious cycle. So I don't think there should be a discussion in the general public of the good side of illegal drug use because when it's all said and done, there is no good side for the vast majority of people. And I'm really more focusing on the harder drugs here because that's where it's much more clear. I'm not talking about drugs that are developed for... uh, a real medicinal purpose, things like Vicodin that people take to lessen their pain and then also get abused by people like Bad Guy 23. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about drugs like crack that are only there for recreational use. So just because a few people can handle it, just because Shane Schlager has handled it better than most crack users, that doesn't mean we should have a discussion now and a dialogue that maybe crack use is okay if you can control yourself. That's the whole problem is most people can't control themselves when on crack. So for the few that can, uh, there shouldn't be a mainstream discussion about uh, why it isn't all that bad. So, PLOL, who I know listens to this show, posted something funny in the thread about that. He said, I wish him nothing but the best, but I haven't heard too many I'm going to keep smoking crack but not go overboard success stories. <laughs> and that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, like, you, you just can't come out and, and say, uh, I smoke crack and I'm okay and you should too. It's just not the right advice to give people. It's just not the right fight, the right advice to give people. And look at Mayor Rob Ford. <laughs> look at him. That's all I have to say about that. Someone in the chat saying Druff is in full Nancy Reagan mode. You know, I'm not even coming out here telling you how to live your life. If you want to do drugs, I'm not going to interfere with that. I, I, there's a lot of people who do drugs who listen to this show, who, who read my forum, who post on my forum. I'm, I'm aware of that. I, I've been around poker players when they've done drugs. I've never done them myself, but I've been around, I've been in the room when, when other poker players have been doing drugs. And I don't say, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. I'm not going to tell other people 
I'm not going to lecture them about what they should or shouldn't be doing. I'm, I'm just saying that he wrote this article to try to create a mainstream discussion about the good side of drug abuse, and there just isn't. There just really isn't a good side to that. If you want to do it, fine. I'm just telling you, uh, for the vast majority of people, it ends up not being a smart decision. So, I would suggest reading it, though. I would suggest reading that article. I will say, Shane Schlager... Um, he's usually on the right side of all kinds of like poker moral issues where uh, you know something is being debated whether it's right or wrong having to do with poker and usually when I see him posting about it or blogging about it I totally agree with what he has to say and in fact you know since he's a pretty smart guy he puts it very well and very eloquently uh, the the only time I see him not on the right side is when it involves poker stars or where he was a poker stars pro I don't think he is anymore because of Black Friday but he was a poker stars pro for a while and boy, I mean, he would never criticize them. He was always, always, always defending poker stars, no matter what they did. But whatever. For the most part, I like what he writes. For the most part, I, I agree with what he has to say. But this, this, this was a crazy article. All right, so uh, speaking of people who might not have handled their lives all that well, and I'm not saying that about you, Shaniac. You appear to, for the most part, be okay despite your 15 years of crack use. But uh, some people who are not okay are some of our former World Series of Poker main event champions. Now, I have entered the main event for nine straight years, 05 through 13. The last three years, it has tortured me where I've made it between 83 and 88% of the field gone and failed to cash at the 90% mark. In 2010, I did cash and finished 88th. The other years I didn't come close. But every time, every time as the main event comes up, every time as I plunk down $10,000 worth of $100 bills at the casino cage and get my ticket in exchange, I think, wow, what if this is the start? What if this moment where I'm getting my seat that assigns me to this table is setting in motion a chain of events to where I'm going to be the champion. What if this is setting in motion a chain of events to where in a week and a half I've made the final table and in a few months I'm the champion and I get $9 million and all the fame and promotional opportunities that come with it? What if that happens? I mean, I got to the final 88. Obviously, I can do it. Requires a hell of a lot of luck that I'll probably never get. But I've thought of it. Every single person who's played the main event has thought of it. For me, it hasn't happened. For almost all of us, it hasn't happened and never will happen. Especially since the numbers for the main event are in excess of 6,000 people every year. But then you have to think, is it necessarily a good thing for it to happen? Is it actually better that you don't have the admiration, the fame, the all-of-a-sudden money that can ruin your life? Is it sometimes better to keep the status quo to where everything that comes with the main event victory does not change you and ruin your life? 
I've thought of that too, occasionally, but not that much because I know I would not let it do that to me. If I won the main event, I would be thrilled with the extra money. I would not waste it. I'm not saying I would save it all. I'd probably get something nice. Maybe I'd even go live in a nicer place. Maybe I'd make some investments with it. But I, you wouldn't see me in the highest stakes game shooting off my money. You wouldn't see me betting 500000 a hand in the pits. You wouldn't see me placing insane sports bets. You wouldn't see any of that. I would basically be the same person. I'd even still be doing this radio show. But a lot of the other main event champions can't stay the same. Now, I'm going to start from the year 2000. Chris Ferguson, who was mentioned earlier on this show. We're going to start with him and go all the way through 2013, Ryan Reese, who I don't have that much to say about because not much has passed, not much time has passed since him. So Chris Ferguson, let's start with him. He won $1.5 million. And remember, this is before taxes, so they don't keep all this money. You have to, of course, uh, know that. And of course, the ones who won a number of years ago, um, life has expenses, even if you don't live extravagantly. So if you had $1.5 million in 2000, uh, I'm not saying that it costs $1.5 million to live for 14 years, but... Uh, that's only a little more than 100000 spent a year. And a lot of people spend that easily who work in uh, regular jobs. Anyway, 2000, Chris Ferguson won $1.5 million, Only 512 people in the main event. Well, we know what happened with him. Made a lot of money from Full Tilt, but stole a lot of money from the community through Full Tilt. Won't bother to repeat all that. We already discussed it, but uh, the fact that people are discussing how frustrated they are that he is returning to poker says a lot about his legacy. 2001, Carlos Mortensen. He's an interesting story. He does not have uh, the baggage of a Chris Ferguson. He is still a well-known name today. He is still active in poker today. I have heard, I don't have verification of this, so please don't take this as gospel, but I've heard he was having money problems up until recently. I know he, uh, I think he did fairly well on some tournament uh, not too long ago, but, uh, oh, the main event, what am I talking about? He did well in the 2013 main event. But uh, I heard in times before that he was struggling. I even heard stories he was broke. I did see him playing um, Limit Hold'em, at like 4080, I played against him. Not to say playing 4080 means you're broke. I play 4080 a lot, and I'm not broke, but uh, a guy like Carlos Mortensen playing 4080 limit um, instead of the biggest game he can find is somewhat of an indication, in my opinion. But he won also 1.5 million. There were 613 participants that year. 2002, Robert Varconi. He was an amateur mostly an amateur. He won $2 million, the first multi-million dollar World Series of Poker winner. 631 entrants. Um, He was really the first World Series of Poker winner I paid attention to. I was playing poker in 2001, but I was so uninterested in tournaments that uh, I didn't even pay attention to Carlos Mortensen winning in 01. I started looking at tournament results that didn't have any interest in playing in 2002 and saw Varconi. Um... 
Varconi, a lot of people made fun of him over the years. A lot of people said that he wasn't good, he was a fish who got lucky, etc., etc. Um, I, I will say, from what I have exam, what I've seen, uh, Varconi doesn't have much of that money left either. He did take a sponsorship with Inner Poker, but it wasn't very lucrative. Unfortunately for Varconi, he wasn't really the type who was going to benefit very much during the poker boom because he really didn't have the charisma that was necessary. You didn't have to have that much charisma. Like Chris Moneymaker, he, he has the great name and the great story, but he doesn't have that much personal charisma. But yet, uh, he got amazing endorsement opportunities. Uh, Robert Varconi really is the the quintessential boring middle-aged accountant type. So nobody wanted him even during the poker boom except for inner poker and they didn't pay him that much. Uh I I spent some time with him in St. Kitts. We weren't friends or anything, but you know, I I talked to him some since I had some association with inner poker for a while too. I got to know him through that. Seemed like a nice enough guy. Didn't seem like a degenerate at all. Uh he had a wife named Olga. So he had like a European or Russian wife or whatever. Um, she looked younger than him too. Haven't seen much of him recently, and uh, as I said, I was hearing rumors that he doesn't have much of it left. Not sure what happened to it. Chris Moneymaker in 2003. I should look at the chat room while I do this in case people have information that I'm uh, missing. Someone saying in the chat I should have gone back to 1994 when that scum Russ Hamilton won. <laughs> I should have, but... Uh, I just kind of chose uh, 2000 as a uh, arbitrary year to start. 2003 Chris Moneymaker. Well, what can I say about that? Chris Moneymaker is the reason that a lot of us, not me, but a lot of you, I should say, got into poker. Chris Moneymaker won a satellite for 40 bucks on Poker Stars and then went on to win the main event for 2.5 million. Only 839 entrants that year. And between Moneymaker's Every Man Success Story and poker being televised with whole cards, everybody wanted to play poker. Everyone wanted to be the next Moneymaker. Now, Moneymaker, unlike Varconi, got a wonderful endorsement deal. I was hearing he was getting a million dollars between the cash and tournament buy-ins from Poker Stars, who he was representing all those years. I, I really blew the chance. I, I should have done... One million dollars. But I screwed up. It's probably my only chance to use that the whole show. But anyway, uh, Moneymaker... I, I thought the guy was in great shape. Because, I mean, 2.5 million, especially after taxes, is not going to last you a lifetime unless you live pretty cheaply. But this guy had the million dollars a year in in his poker stars deal or if it wasn't that it was still something pretty large and he had it for a long time he was representing them actively all the way through black friday and he was still associated with them after black friday furthermore he had enough charisma he had enough likability to where he could even get other endorsements i know he did uh speaking engagements I used to see them advertised. Uh, not even always related to poker. Like, he would just uh, speak at business luncheons. I mean, he was taking everything. He had some agent that was getting him a lot of different work, and he was getting a lot of uh, a lot of endorsement money. 
Well, we talked about it on this show because I actually got very involved in a 2 plus 2 thread a few months ago where Chris Moneymaker and another poker pro named Jason Young were arguing about Chris Moneymaker having a bad sports betting debt and owed Jason Young about $25,000 and couldn't pay? What? But yeah, apparently Chris Moneymaker was broke. And Jason Young posted these text messages between them that all but confirmed that Chris Moneymaker was fully broke. It turned out also that Chris Moneymaker had appeared in a poker documentary where he was talking about having a bad sports betting problem. So Chris Moneymaker not only shot off his $2.5 million that he won during the 2003 main event, but he shot off every dollar he made through all of these endorsements, which is incredible. He must have been the ultimate sports betting degenerate, and it seemed like from the whole debacle with him and Jason Young, it turned out the two of them were both free-rolling one another from all appearances. And it turned out that Jason won the free-roll bet, so then Chris owed him, but it could have just easily been the other way, where where Chris would have won and, and Jason Young couldn't have paid him. So... Uh, what a disaster I mean it's, it's one thing to win 2.5 million but to have just the money continuing to roll in year after year after year for representing poker stars as one of their main faces and still be broke wow uh, he also got a divorce shortly after winning the money didn't really look at the picture of his previous wife and next wife I think he got married again he got married again yeah so in fact he's blaming his current problems on uh, on not not letting his wife find out or his wife uh, something about his wife I'm forgetting it now I think I blocked it out because that whole thing turned into such a clusterfuck Greg Raymer well for a long time Greg Raymer really looked like someone beyond reproach he won 5 million dollars in 2004 a much larger field now as the poker boom was getting going of 2,576 people I had not yet played the main event this year, in 2004. Ten years ago now, uh, Greg Raymer, known as Fossil Man for the funny glasses he wears with the... Uh, or not, sorry, he wears the funny lizard glasses, but he's called Fossil Man for the fossil he uses as a card protector. Uh, so, Raymer seemed to have everything going for him. Now, while he was not young and good-looking, he was middle-aged and very much overweight, um... He was very respected. He was very active in the Poker Players Alliance and did a lot to help for the fight to legalize online poker. Uh, He was very well-spoken whenever they interviewed him. He was not a degenerate from any appearances. It didn't seem like he had a gambling problem. It didn't seem like he had any drug problems. Uh, He didn't seem like one of these young punks of poker. He seemed like a responsible, married, middle-aged guy the type that you would trust. Just an intelligent guy who used his intellect to become a good poker player and was very responsible. Well, that started to break apart when reports came out that he was arrested for soliciting a male prostitute? he had the worst nightmare because he wasn't soliciting a male prostitute. He was soliciting a female prostitute, and it was misreported. But uh, they corrected it, but not before 
the whole country thought that Greg Raymer was gay and in the closet and visiting gay hookers. I mean, that's the, it's bad enough to be a public figure and arrested for prostitution, but can you imagine uh, you get arrested for seeing a female prostitute and it turns out uh, the story says you were seeing a male and then you you know there's going to be a certain segment of the population that wrong, wrongfully believes you're gay and in the closet? But anyway, uh, while Greg Raymer is not gay, uh, he does seem to have a lot of problems beyond seeing prostitutes. Greg Raymer was recently asking for a $100,000 stake to play cash games and tournaments. And he's claiming the reason he wants the $100,000 is not because he's broke, but because his wife... Uh, he, it's responsible to do to his wife uh, wants him not to risk his own money. So he's saying, I'm a winner. I'm a lifetime winner in poker and I win every year. But um, my wife is still worried I could lose. So in order to make my marriage better, I'm agreeing to not risk my own money and you guys can put it up. So you guys will get the benefit of my winning play because I'm not allowed to risk my money. That's basically what he's trying to say. I said that is absolute BS. His wife has been with him a long time. He won the World Series of Poker main event 10 freaking years ago. If he's been putting up winning year after winning year since 2004, and they've been getting richer and richer, uh, number one, he wouldn't need a lousy $100,000. Number two, his wife would have plenty of faith in him winning if every single year since then he's put up winning years. What do you think his wife's saying? Yeah, you won $5 million in 2004. You've won every year since. I think this is going to be the year you lose. So I don't want you gambling your own money. I, I want you to borrow 100000 from others and give them uh, most of the profits or, or some of the profits from, from what you win. <laughs> Wait, does his wife hate money? And that's not what happened. What, what really must have happened is... He probably either blew through all of his cash to where his only asset was the house that you know, he wasn't going to take a, a loan against that, so he had to get cash some way, or he got himself down to a low enough level to where his wife did become uncomfortable and said, look, Greg, you have lost all I can, uh, can bear to have you lose back. You need to stop now. You either need to stop gambling or gamble with someone else's money, but no more gambling with our money because if you lose any more, we're going to really be in trouble. has to be something like that. I don't have any information saying it is something like that, but it has to be something along those lines. Nobody who is winning year after year after year needs a full stake for cash games and tournaments. This is cash games too, which is crazy. Cash games, you have to really, really, really trust the person that they're going to accurately report what they win. And you may say, oh, Greg Gramery seems like such a nice guy, such a trustworthy guy. I don't know. He cheated on his wife with a prostitute. I mean, uh, how trustworthy could he be? But really, it's very, very tempting for anyone struggling for money to underreport their cash game wins when you're doing a cash take. At least tournaments, you see exactly what they won. Cash games, they tell you if they won or lost. So... 
even if he's totally honest about that, nobody ever asks for a full cash and tournament stake unless they can't afford to play. Now, if you compare this to what I do with uh, my World Series of Poker nowadays, where since I don't play many tournaments anymore, uh, what I do is to combat the variance, I sell pieces of myself. But here, what you're doing is you're buying pieces of me, but I'm still putting up my own money, and I still state, and very accurately state, that I will play all the events that I state I'm going to play, whether I get people buying what I want them to buy or whether no one buys. I'm going to play either way. But uh, you don't see me asking for people to stake me into cash games. That really reeks of desperation. You don't see me asking people to fully stake me into events. That also reeks of desperation. Yeah, and someone mentioning in chat, uh, Riley G, saying he also won the uh, HPT events. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. I don't know where all the money went. But the fact that he was seeing prostitutes shows that he might have a hidden degenerate side that we don't know about. Sometimes these people who seem very legitimate, very uh, responsible on the surface... Sometimes those people are the biggest degenerates of all. Just got a text here, that's why I paused for a second, from the 954 area code. Uh, someone saying that uh, Shane needs poker pills. <laughs> Remember, poker pills is some uh, ridiculous site that was claiming to sell pills that will make you a poker player, a better poker player. And maybe Shane should do those. Replace the crack with poker pills. Anyway, getting past Greg Raymer, I, th- I think his life is in trouble. I think his marriage is in trouble. I think uh, his finances are in trouble. And he no longer has a deal with poker stars. And it's very possible that uh, a lot of the play he was doing was on poker stars' dime over the years. And now that he doesn't have that anymore, that's why he's resorting to this. But where the rest of the money went, I don't know. I have to think that some of it went into the house he lives in, which I hear is pretty nice, but it's got to be beyond that. There's got to be something that he must have gone through the money. Joe Hatcham. Well, this is an interesting one. Joe Hatcham, 2005, is the first uh, main event I played. People liked him at first, how he was so enthusiastic about uh, his country of Australia. Seemed like a friendly guy, out, you know, the very outgoing Over the years, people came to dislike him. It seems like whenever he speaks, he says obnoxious things, whether public or private. I heard a story one time where someone was sitting next to him in a tournament. I think it was in uh, in 2007, just two years after he won. It was in some tournament, and he took a bad beat in the World Series. It wasn't even the main event, some preliminary event in the World Series. And Hatcham got up and said, ah, the story of my life, and walked away in frustration. What? The story of my life? He won $7.5 million in a 5,619-person tournament in the World Series of Poker main event. Even if he never won another tournament again, which he did win, by the way, you can't complain about your luck in poker. Joe Hatcham is now running way over 
expectation, way, way, way over expectation in poker luck for lifetime. And always has been since he won that. The story of my life. And then he storms away. Unbelievable. More recently, he got on video, I think it was in February, bashing Jamie Gold and Jerry Yang, of all people, saying that uh, they're ruining the legacy of the main event. Now, I understand Jamie Gold, which we'll talk about in a second, but why Jerry Yang? I mean, he's had a few problems and he's broke, but Jerry Yang is not a Jamie Gold. He's not someone who taints the main event. Why even come out and say that? Why why should one main event champion come out and arrogantly put down the others? He should just keep his mouth closed, even if he privately thinks that. So, while I haven't heard that uh, Joe Hatcham has blown his money, he's definitely looked upon now unfavorably by a lot of people who just kind of see him as a jerk. Jamie Gold, most controversial of all main event champions since 2000, won in 2006 the biggest main event ever, 8,773 people at the height of the poker boom. He won $12,000, million. And... Jamie Gold had it was just one problem after another with this guy. This guy was not a professional poker player. He was a guy, kind of just a degenerate who was uh, who liked to play poker, was decent at it, and was mostly a uh, low to mid stakes player. Saw himself as a Hollywood agent, but in reality, he really didn't have any success there either. Uh, he was pretty much a hustler. And it was appropriate that this hustler played often in the Hustler Casino, which is not known for its high-stakes action. Jamie Gold talked Bodog into giving him a $10,000 free entry into the main event, but only if he could produce a celebrity to play the main event, also on Bodog's dime, wearing the Bodog logo. So Jamie Gold, who pretended to be a big-time agent, had a hard time getting anyone willing to do this, even for a free buy-in. He just didn't have the contacts. He contacted another wannabe agent named Crispin Leiser, who uh, he told, look, um, I'll try to get you in on this. We'll see if Bodog will give you also a $10,000 seat. So Crispin Leiser, who's also a poker player, agreed and helped him out. Between the two of them, I think mostly through Crispin's help, they did score a celebrity. The one, the only, the great, the legendary, Matthew Lillard. <laughs> also known as Shaggy in the first Scooby-Doo movie. I mean, it just that, that's the celebrity they got. So they brought Matthew Lillard to Bodog and said, here's your celebrity, we'll take our two main event scenes, seats, please. And Bodog said, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, this guy is hardly a celebrity. We'll accept it, but just barely. Second, you guys were each going to get us a celebrity, not one between the two of you. Now, had you brought us a big celebrity, we would have accepted that, but you bringing us a minor celebrity between the two of you, we're not giving you two seats. We will give you one seat, and we're being generous by giving you that. So they had to reluctantly accept that. question was, who got to play? Jamie convinced Crispin Leiser, hey, I'm the better poker player between the two of us. You're, you're too much of an amateur. Let me play. I'll do better. Well, I guess he was right. 
He did do better. He did great. He won, and he was the chip leader most of the way. The problem was they didn't have a contract about this. They were going to split it. The agreement was they're going to split 50-50. Well, Crispin Leiser was watching Jamie Gold's success and started to panic. Crap, what if this shady character screws me? This is the last guy I would trust to do the right thing and give me my $6 million if he ends up winning the whole thing or whatever he wins. So he started to call Jamie Gold over and over and over again. Jamie Gold kept saying, leave me the fuck alone. You know, it'll be fine. Just leave me alone. I'm trying to concentrate on the tournament. Well, Crispin Lizer had every right to demand something in writing at this point, and uh, Jamie Gold, looking to steal the money and give him none, probably, was putting this off and trying to ignore him. The problem was Crispin Lizer was very, very persistent. And finally, Jamie Gold couldn't stand it anymore. So, out of frustration during the tournament, he dialed up Crispin Lizer, got his voicemail, and left an angry message saying, Dude, stop fucking bothering me, man. I'm trying to concentrate on this tournament. Yeah, you'll get your half, okay? You'll get your half. That became known as the $6 million voicemail message. Because when Jamie Gold won and tried to deny giving anything to Crispin Lizer, denying that he had ever agreed to this, he had forgotten about the voicemail. He thought it was just his word against Crispin's. And when the voicemail was brought out, uh, Jamie not only was screwed legally, he was screwed in the court of public opinion because this story had gotten out and the few who thought that maybe Jamie could be telling the truth uh, once the existence of this voicemail became known, uh, that was that. And everyone hated Jamie Gold. Even Bodog hated Jamie Gold and dropped him. They had him for free. Keep in mind, here Chris Moneymaker is getting a million dollars a year to represent poker stars, and Bodog doesn't want Jamie Gold for free. They dropped him. So Jamie Gold's name was anything but gold at that point, and he settled out of court with Crispin Lizer for an unknown sum, probably something very, very close to $6 million. By the way, the guy representing Crispin Lizer was Mark Safe. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I almost didn't want him to win for that reason. Mark Safe uh, of AP, who may or may not have cheated people with a super user on there. The guy who definitely assisted AP in the cover-up. The guy who claimed to have had all his hand histories lost when questioned about his heads-up match where he acted very suspiciously. The guy who debated me on Wicked Chops on the video saying that I didn't have a right to have people asking to see his hand histories after what came out about AP and the super users. Mark Safe, who claimed he didn't see cheating when he watched the Pot Ripper video of the AP cheating that was so blatant that even a five-year-old could probably see cheating there. <laughs> Mark, the attorney, was somehow unable to see cheating there. So, same Mark Safe, who eventually left AP with an agreement that uh, both won't ever discuss anything about the other, which translates to uh, both have secrets. We know AP's secrets, and Mark's we can probably only guess. Anyway, he represented Crispin Laser there. Interesting. Um, moving along, Jamie Gold, by the way, was last seen as... He's totally broke now, and was last seen as the face on a boat for some kind of literal fail boat that you gamble on from Florida. You get on the boat, it goes offshore, sits offshore for five hours and comes back. Sounds awful. 
And uh, he's the face of that boat of the Jamie Gold poker room. He's really desperate for any work and any money. Uh, Jamie Gold also with his bracelet up for auction. So uh, no more World Series of Poker bracelet for Jamie Gold. You're going to see this as a theme. Now, I don't know if uh, Chris Moneymaker still has his bracelet. Uh, I assume Raymer and Hotchim and uh, Mortensen... I'm not even sure about Mortensen. Ferguson has it, I'm sure. Um, but... Uh, Raymond Hatcham have it. I don't know about Varconi. I imagine he probably has it. But I'll tell you one who doesn't have it. Next champion, 2007, Jerry Yang. An amateur from uh, Temecula, California. Who played good big stack poker. He was the only one with balls late in the event in 2007. And just kept running people off hands. Nobody was willing to risk their stack that deep in the main event. Even against the guy who was showing his willingness to keep shoving it in. The strategy worked. Jerry Yang won $8.25 million in 2007. However, Jerry Yang had his bracelet confiscated by the IRS, probably as a form of payment. So that shows you how broke Jerry is. You know he would not have given up that bracelet had he had the money to pay the IRS. He claims he made some mistakes regarding his taxes and regarding his businesses. I believe he made a lot of bad investments. Uh, he did famously give away 10% of his win to charity immediately upon winning. He was a very religious Christian, actually acknowledged play, praying to God during hands of the main event. God must have answered him. And uh, he gave 10% to charities after he won. He should have reserved some for his own charity for himself because it seems like he's broke. He did have a restaurant for some time. I don't know if he still has it that had a lot of bad reviews on Yelp. So Jerry Yang looking like he's not in very good shape financially despite scoring $8.25 million just less than seven years ago. Peter Eastgate in 2008 won $9.1 million in a field of 68.44 people. Peter Eastgate, um, this guy, very strange, that's all I can say about him. Um, Peter Eastgate, first of all, um, I mentioned earlier that Greg Raymer was erroneously reported as being gay. Peter Eastgate has never been reported as being gay, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually was. I'm not saying this is a flaw, by the way, you know, if he's gay, he's gay. But um, I'm just mentioning it. He's never come out as a gay poker player, but there were some pictures that came out of him frolicking in the waterfalls with with other young men that, uh, at least in the U.S., you wouldn't typically see among straight friends. But uh, I'll leave it at that. But he had this weird hiatus from poker where he just left poker for no reason and then sold his bracelet which is even weirder, especially since it seemed like he was not having money problems. He just kind of left. I I just think Peter Eastgate is uh, probably kind of a tortured soul in some way, and that's what uh, led to this erratic behavior of his. I I don't know much about him otherwise, other than seeing him leave poker for a while. He did come back, and, uh, and by the way, Someone mentioned that during the World Series of Poker, this is back to uh, Jerry Yang, that he played 1-3 no limit 
during the 2013 World Series at the Palm Poker Room. Wow. How the mighty have fallen. By the way, uh, someone else saying in the chat, Jay Stack saying that he got a video of Lane Flack busting Jerry Yang out of the 2011 World Poker Tour shooting star and then screaming, God looks over drunks and fools. <laughs> Sounds like Lane. Sounds like something he would say. Um... By the way, I forgot to mention for the free roll about the gift card. I see someone just got second in the tournament. Uh, Garrett got it. Uh, the, the the restaurant gift card is for things like, uh, I think, Olive Garden and Red Lobster and Bahama Breeze and a few places like that. So not like high-end places, but just very mainstream uh Mainstream chain type of restaurants I think, they, I think there were like four or five It was given to us by an anonymous donor I also forgot to mention who donated the, the money This week The money was donated this week uh, 20 from Pooh, 25 from Hockey Guy And uh, 10 from Natural Born Hustler I wanted to get that out Anyway uh, Moving on to the next champion Joe Kata. Joe Kata, from what I've seen, has done well. He's one of the few main event champions since 2000 that uh, can say that his life has gone pretty well. I haven't heard any bad stories about Joe Kata. I haven't heard about any kind of uh, unfortunate events for Joe Kata. He's won a lot of tournaments. He seems to have only gotten better since 2009. He's very well respected as a tournament player. He won 8.574 million with almost 6,500 people in 2009. That year in 2009 was the first time I made day two after four consecutive day one exits. I made day two for the first time with a short stack, but got almost my whole buy-in back th- thanks to being on a final table with Phil Helmuth, where I gave him a hard time about UB, and they cut it out at ESPN, and I was even threatened by the floor man to stop talking about it, or I would get disqualified, basically. I'd get a penalty that would be so long that my stack couldn't handle it. But Joe Kata, from everything I've seen and heard, has uh, done pretty well for himself. Someone in the chat saying he's broke? Huh. I'd be surprised. I see him keep winning. And people are always saying people are broke. I don't know. Someone in the chat says he's broke. I don't know. Um, someone did mention that Joe Kata's bar and restaurant that he opened with his father supposedly closed. Beer and Poker saying I'm mispronouncing Kata's last name. Alright, so uh, moving on to 2010, Jonathan Duhamel. Jonathan Duhamel had something unfortunate happen to him. It wasn't directly his fault. Not sure how he's doing poker-wise. Um, in 2011, December 2011, there is a brutal home invasion robbery. Speaking of Canada, you know, one good thing I'll say for Canada, I know I was kind of making fun of Canada earlier, but Canada is is a pretty safe place compared to the U.S. They just have much less violent crime there. But it was not very safe for Jonathan Duhamel, who was, I think in Montreal, he was badly beaten during a home invasion robbery in December 2011. Uh, They also stole um, his Rolex watch and, and, and some money. 
among people arrested for this were his ex-girlfriend. So he got involved with a girl that then brought some bad dudes over to his house and did a home invasion robbery and beat him up. That is a pretty bad choice in women. That is pretty bad. When this happened, I thought about it. I thought, hmm, what if I could win the 2010 main event but also know that I would get badly beaten up in a home invasion robbery about a year and a half later? Would I accept that or would I rather just be me and not have had that all happen? Would it be worth winning the 2010 main event to get really badly beaten in a home invasion robbery? I think probably yes, but it depends how badly you're beaten. So, that happened to Jonathan Duhamel. I haven't heard of what has happened since that occurred to uh, Joe, as far as his finances and all that. Don't know much about uh, Duhamel beyond that. 2011, Pius Hines he won 8.715 million. By the way, Duhamel, I didn't mention, he won almost 9 million. Uh, Pius Hines won. Oh, by the way, Duhamel, I don't know why I skipped this too. 7,319 7, entrants. I was 88th out of that. And I may have been a force had my race of, ace, of queens against ace king held up. And the sick thing was when I uh, went all in with that hand against a very similar, similar stack to mine. By the way, it wasn't sixes and fours. It was queens against ace-king. I did it with a very strong read from the way the guy was acting and from what I'd seen of him before that he did not have kings or aces. I knew he had either ace-king or jacks or tens. And I figured I had to go in with queens knowing that. And I was right. He had ace-king. I I was hoping to see jacks, but he had ace-king and he flopped the ace. So, Otherwise, I would have doubled up there to above average and with 88 people left and above average, anything could have happened. Wasn't meant to be. Pius Hines don't know much about him. So I, I can't comment much on him. I'm going to skip Pius Hines, other than mentioning that he won $8.7 million with 6,865 people. 2012 main event. Greg Merson. $8.7 million. 6,600 entrants. He has had a lot of controversy between him and other poker pros. He he was uh, t- tweeting very angrily about um, getting shut out of ARIA games where uh, they would essentially make it a private game which is against Nevada gaming regulations. Basically, they would uh, um, close the game and not let people sit even though there were still seats there that should have been opened because they wanted to keep the fish for themselves. See, he was very public about this and and made a lot of noise about it. And I I agreed with him. He also made a lot of noise about something else, which I'm forgetting now. Maybe somebody in the chat room can remind me. But whenever Merson sees something that he doesn't like, he actually makes a big deal about it. And, um, by the way, someone told me it's Pius Hines, not Pius Hines. See, I'm, I'm just not good with these names. But uh, every time I've seen Merson make a big deal about something, he's been right. And I have to say that if I were a main event winner, and I knew that I would have a bigger audience for speaking because I'm a main event winner, I would do the same thing. So I'm not going to bash Greg Merson for getting into it with other poker pros or complaining about things because uh, there should be more like him. So he hasn't really had 
bad fortune other than if you want to say that the getting shut out of the aria big games by the other pros is bad fortune and finally I got a text from someone right now not on the PFA number but on my own personal cell phone number is your show over yet I hate when people ask me is your show over yet just just you know where to find it turn it on and see if it's over jeez I'm not going to name who did that, but uh, I hate when I get texts like that. JSTAT saying Merson has no right to play in a casino. Casinos have the right to refuse service in Nevada. I don't know what that's referring to. Maybe they can explain it in the chat. I, I don't think he's been kicked out of anywhere, but maybe he has. Final winner, Ryan Reese, who won in 2013. 8,359,000 with 6,352 entrants, which I should point out is the lowest number of entrants they've had since 05, but uh, it's pretty similar to the fields of most of the years since 07. They've all been around the same. Um, Ryan Reese, I haven't heard that much about him other than that he got very arrogant after he won. Including when he was speaking right after he won But other than that I haven't heard much about him But uh, I'm sure we'll hear stories in the future By the way uh, Someone asking in the chat I don't know why they're asking this But uh, Where did I finish in the 2008 Mixed Hold'em event That was 10th place it was the final table bubble. We were technically on a final table because they combined us to one table, but uh, the official final table was nine. I didn't have any kind of heartbreaking story with that one. I was very short-stacked, and everybody else had a decent stack, so I was the likely final table bubble boy on that one. I was very disappointed to bubble that one for the final table because uh, it was mixed hold'em with mixed limit and no limit and there was only one other guy there who was a competent limit hold'em player. Everybody else sucked at limit hold'em and in fact was playing very scared in the limit hold'em parts against me. So uh, I really liked my chances at the final table if I made it with some chips, but I, I didn't. <laughs> F and Donkey, who was the one who asked, he said, why did I ask? Fucker, I spent three days hanging out and playing with you guys. That unmemorable, I get it. No, I remember you very well, F and Donkey. And in fact, I liked F and Donkey. He was a very nice guy. Uh, I, I guess, I, some, I didn't remember this for some reason. He said he was two spots from the bubble. And it's funny because I almost bubbled that event, but I actually took a very aggressive approach with the bubble, where I was just, uh, I just said, screw it, I, this isn't, that much money, the buy-in, it was a 1500 buy-in, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to keep shoving in here, it was during the no-limit part, and I, I made some ballsy shoves, and one, I got lucky, where I uh, was dominated and, and won on the river, uh, the other one, uh, other times I was just forcing people off when I didn't have very much at all, and uh, they even reported on one of these poker news sites, I don't think it was poker news, I think it was Pocket Fives, but one of them reported that uh, I, I was looking very fearless on the bubble, just repeatedly going all in. But I, I guess it worked for me But I, I came very close to being The stone bubble boy on that one So I could have joined F and Donkey As the second stone bubble boy um, Yeah he says We ate bullshit 50 cent tacos every night That was at uh, a, a bar called Money Plays 
on Flamingo. It's still there, to my knowledge. They're uh, cheap tacos over there. It's like one one half of it's like a, a taco stand, the other half of it's a regular bar. So, moving on here, now that we've talked about our World Series winners, the takeaway here is that a lot of these World Series main event winners aren't doing very well. Think about it. Think of all the different stories I told you that were not good about these main event winners. Whether about their reputation, about their finances, or both. Some of them have even given away their bracelets. Not given away, but sold. Well, I'm through all the main topics. One I didn't list there that I want to mention... um, Bitcoin has had a surprising resurgence. I, I thought after Mount Gox it was going to really uh, suffer for a while until people were willing to give it a chance again. But uh, it suffered for like a day and then shot back up. And then inexplicably, like two days ago, really shot back up. So right now, the accepted value of Bitcoin, with Mount Gox assumed to be gone, and or not assumed, it is gone, and uh, and with $500 million stolen from it, Bitcoin sits at $648 and, and hit a high of around 700 I would not suggest investing at this point. I think this is uh, optimism that's going to go away soon. Um, a small exchange went down, I believe it was today. What was it called? Uh, maybe one of the Bitcoin experts would know this. This exchange just went down. Um, here we are. Flexcoin. I hadn't heard of Flexcoin, but uh, Flexcoin, which didn't have that much in the exchange, I think only about 900 coins, uh, went down. Yeah, as they say they were robbed. Real of their... people. What? What's this? Steal people. When it comes to. <laughs> Trying to read a news article. I hate. I hate autoplay. I hate autoplay on web pages. I, I despise it because sometimes you don't want sound to just blare at you. Sometimes you're you're browsing the web. Um, sitting next to someone who's sleeping. Uh, sometimes you're at work. Sometimes you, you're doing a radio show and you don't want to sound unprofessional. Jeez. Anyway, it was 896 coins supposedly got stolen. So that's that. And, you know, with each coin being worth $648, 896 coins is a lot. Uh, you know, it's many hundreds of thousands of dollars. The problem with these, quote, thefts of these exchanges, you don't know if they're really thefts. You don't know if they're thefts from the outside or if it's an inside job. They always claim it's from the outside, but that's the problem with Bitcoin. You, you know, these exchanges can always claim someone hacked them, someone exploited something, and there's, it's very hard to prove otherwise. It's very tempting given the big money involved. So Flexcoin went down. Someone was also killed in Singapore, a woman who was, uh, of course, uh, it's suspected suicide now, I guess. I, I heard she was killed, but I guess uh, since then it's come out that uh, it's a suspected suicide. Autumn Ratke, an American CEO of uh, a Bitcoin exchange firm First Meta, First Meta, was found dead in her Singapore apartment on February 28th. Local media calling it a suicide, but Singapore officials are waiting for toxicology test results, so I, I guess it could have been an OD, but probably wasn't killed. But who knows? 
There have been a number of financial-related suicides. Um, a vice president with J.P. Morgan killed himself. He jumped to his death from the roof of the bank on January 28th. Um, another J.P. Morgan executive director who worked in New York was found dead in his home in Connecticut. So, I guess we'll find out about that one. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise investing in Bitcoin right now. Wow, I don't know if this is true. I mean, it's it's being said by. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. A guy in the chat is saying that Mt. Gox claims that they have $3.8 billion in assets, but $6.5 billion in liabilities. But where would they even have $3.8 billion in assets? I thought they were pretty much broke. I think if they had $3.8 billion in assets, they could have kept the ruse up a lot longer. So I don't believe those numbers. Final segment here, Ask Dan Druff. This will go on as long as you guys have good questions. If you have no questions, I'm ending the show now. Ask Dan Druff is a segment I do every so often where you ask me things either on the phone, or in the chat room, or via text. You can text me at 775-372-8355. You can message me in the chat room, which I am now actively reading. You can also call me at 775-FRAUD55 or 702-430-1808. Okay, I'll take the first question. It's a tough question, but I'll take it. Why don't you make up with Micon? Like the Oakland A's in the championship years in the 70s, getting along doesn't reflect success. Well, a lot of questions coming in here. Try to answer them all. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Micon. Uh, it's just basically one of those friendships where too much happened where you can't go back and be friends again. That, that's all I can say. Just too much happened... It's one of these things where too much was damaged and, and we could never be friends again. It's just not possible. And we both feel that way. I, I don't think he wants to be friends with me again. I don't want to be friends with him again. Um, next question. Is marriage plus EV? Well, yes and no. Um, first of all, don't get married young. Don't get married before both people are 25. Not just you're 25, but before both people are 25. Because people change too much these days. The days of getting married at, at age 20 or 21, my parents were very young when they got married, by today's standards. By their day standards, they weren't. But they were uh, 21 and 23 when they got married. And they're still together. It's been almost 50 years. But uh, in general, these days, since times have changed and people have changed, uh it's just not a good idea to get married before age 25. And to tell you the truth, there are a lot of uh, divorces of people in my parents' generation, too. That's why I saw so many kids' parents get divorced when I was in high school in the 80s. But really, wait till after you're 25. You think you know yourself, and you may not if you're under 25. And even if you know yourself for sure, the person you're marrying may not. Second, do not get married if there is any doubt in the relationship. Do not think marriage will improve your relationship. It will not. It will make it worse. 
if you think that there are big flaws in your relationship, and I say big flaws, everybody has small flaws in their relationship, but if there's any big flaws, real big problems that you think uh, aren't likely to change, if you're being realistic about it, do not get married. It will be a divorce or you'll be miserable. Um, Number three, do not get married if there's a big income disparity and you're spouse refuses to sign a prenuptial agreement. Now, assets you have going into the marriage are somewhat safe, provided you keep them somewhat separate, because uh, provided you can prove those were your assets before, and they haven't been mixed that much, you can usually keep them. Uh, But any money made during a marriage is community property, regardless of who made it. For poker players, this can be dangerous, because you never know how much you're going to make if you're playing a lot of big tournaments. But... um, if you have a similar income to your potential spouse, then uh, a prenuptial agreement can be foregone, though uh, I still think it's smart to do. But uh, if there's a big income disparity, you really want one, provided you're the one who's making the more money. And the reason for that is that, except in states with, with fault divorce, which aren't that many anymore, in no-fault divorce states like California is, Uh, you can be a complete angel in your marriage. Your spouse can have done all the wrong things. They could have attacked you, they could have cheated on you, they could have done everything wrong in a marriage, and they'll still get half the money you made when you're together. And that just kill you. Imagine you're married, and your spouse cheats on you, but you've made all the money for the last ten years, during during the ten years you've been married, and she gets half. And you go, wait a minute, but she cheated on me. You're like, no, (laughs) too bad. So... Be careful about that. So, and finally with marriage, uh, past behavior usually indicates future behavior. Not always, but usually. If the person has had a lot of drug or alcohol problems in the past, they very well might again. If they have problems managing money in the past, but they claim they'll be better. They'll probably have problems with money again. And money is the reason for most divorces, by the way. If they have had problems with being faithful, they will very likely have that problem again. So just, you got to be sure going into it that you're doing the right thing. Divorces are never nice. Let me answer some other questions here. Do you like gangbangs? <laughs> That's a good question. What kind of porn do you watch? I'll, I'll answer both together. Uh, I don't watch much porn. I, I think I've said this before, especially when we had uh, Drexel and Vowels on the show and we talked about these type of subjects. I, I really don't watch much porn. Because uh, it just never excited me that much. I'm not saying I've never been excited from porn or never watched, watched porn I have, but I just I'm just not that much into it. Usually I, I like what I can picture in my head better than watching porn. Or what I like best is to actually be really having sex myself. Do I like gangbangs? No. <laughs> in fact, I would never have a male-male-female threesome. To me, that just seems gay. I just, I'm just not turned on by guys at all, and in fact, like having a guy there during sex turns me off. So I, I just would not like that. Druff, do you ever get bored? Yeah. I, I don't know why you're asking me that question, but yeah, I, I get bored sometimes. Uh, one good thing about the internet is you can find things to do on there if you're bored. Um, 
there's a lot of entertainment options these days from your own home if you're bored. But yeah, I get bored. Everybody does. Um, were you ever as? Why are you a seven-star at Caesars? Why do you play casino games? I'm a seven-star at Caesars because I find the cheapest way there, and then utilize the maximum benefits to where it's worth it. Let's see here. Would you do what Neverheeb did? <laughs> no. Draft, now that the U.S. players are getting their money back, should non-board members from... Should non-board former investors in Full Tilt sue for the balance that Preet Bara is sitting on? Referring to the the fact that there's a fund established for Full Tilt the refunds, and that they probably won't end up giving back all the money on the, from the fund. Though hopefully people like me, who they're stalling, will get paid one day. But let's say they're done paying all the U.S. players and they still have money left over. Uh, sh- should the people who were not on the board of Full Tilt sue to get the money that they had on Full Tilt, the balance? My answer is no, and I'll tell you why. Because these people already made so much money in disbursements. The only people who should be able to sue to get this money back would be ones that did not make as much in disbursements as they had on the site that should have been their own money. But this, the disbursements, that's what caused the problem in the first place. So I don't think these people who got the disbursement should be criminally charged. I don't think we should hate them because they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't know that player money was being dispersed here. They didn't know that the that Full Tilt was living on... Uh, such a thin margin that if the slightest thing went wrong, they'd have to dip into player money because of these disbursements. But at the same time, if someone made a fortune from full tilt disbursements, let me tell you, a lot of people made a lot of money on that. A lot of people. Not just the big, big names, but a lot of people who were not the lowest red pros, but kind of the middle-tier red pros were still making a lot of money. They made enough. They shouldn't get any more. At least in my opinion. Druff, who's your favorite rapper? I don't really have one. I've never been a fan of rap. Though someone's guessing Will Smith. <laughs> uh, let, let's uh, see if there's any more questions here, then I'm going to shut this down. I guess everybody likes using the chat room instead of the text here or the phone. Uh, this is not a question, but a comment. If you have to get a prenup, the marriage is a fraud from the start. It's not because... Uh, you don't know the future. You don't know if your spouse is going to change. You don't know if just the way you get along is going to change. Um, a lot of times, divorces can even happen where there really is no fault. Just both people kind of fall out of love. And they're like, hey, you know what? I'm just not into you anymore. You're not into me. Let's just leave. Unfortunately, when that happens, and it's very hard to predict in some cases... Uh, if one person made all the money, it's it's really not fair, especially in a short marriage. I, I can understand more where two people are together for 30 years, and even if one pe- person made all the money, the other person's been with them their whole life or their whole adult life, so you're like, okay, you know, they should get half. But uh, it, it's really not fair for a two-year marriage if someone makes a lot of money during those two years that uh, the other person should get half. They just shouldn't. It's not fair. Druff, have you ever been frozen by the Iceman? No, I have played with him, but I don't think he's ever frozen me. Um, let's see. Come up with more questions. We're shutting this down. Be shutting soon anyway, but uh, come up with more questions. 
775 fraud 55 775-372-8355 and 702-430-1808 are our phone numbers next week we will be back on Tuesday six days from now let's take a quick phone call Garrett you're on hello how's it going Jeff alright so uh, what do you have for me here tonight Oh, not too much, man. I just want to call and say thanks for, uh, you know, uh, putting on the free roll and uh, everybody that donates to it. Now, did you get, you got second place, right? I don't hear uh, yes. Echo. You got sec- So are you going to take the gift card or are you going to want the $15? Oh, that's fine. Uh, I'd prefer the PayPal if that's possible. Well, the, but the PayPal will only be $15, so you have the option to trade with a third place person. Um. Yeah. Let's do that. If so you're going to trade once okay. the gift card. So you're you're going to force the uh, the twenty five dollar gift card onto the third place person, who has to take it. I'm not going to let them trade with the fourth place person. It's got to stop somewhere. Uh. So the third place person will now get the gift card, and you will get the fifteen dollars. Very good. Congratulations for finishing second. Uh. By the way, I'm not mad that your internet cut out or whatever when we were on the show that time when you were co-hosting. I thought you did a good job, and uh, thank you for doing as long as you're able to or as long as your computer will let you do. And uh, let's see if we have any more questions in the chat room. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, a, an update. People want an update as far as Brandon coming back. He said he's going to come back uh, around, uh, I think, April or May. That's when you can expect him. Not right away, but not too long from now. And, uh, you know, I I see that... You know what I meant to tell you to not cut you off? Uh I see that you you have like a more of a formatted show. It seems recently this week, and uh, it seems like a really good idea. It's much more on track and uh, the way it's organized and whatnot. Really? Not I, speaking in the chat, maybe I, you know. I, I thought it's always been a formatted show. Well, it has, but in speaking of the chat, it seems like you're doing a little more regimented almost. Yeah, I, I am paying more attention to the chat room this week that I was doing, just trying to. <laughs> Get some interaction going. So uh, I'd like to see what's written there. It actually bothers me sometimes when I talk for 20 minutes and go, oh, crap, people are typing in the chat room to me and I'm not even seeing it. So, all right, we're going to shut this down now. Thank you, everybody, for all your questions and for listening to this show this week. And, wow, the the server actually, actually stayed up because it's a new server. And the load average, 0.03. What a load average. I love seeing that. 0.03 versus 69 last week. I'd say that's an improvement. The funny thing is the people at the host didn't believe me when I was trying to tell them the server had a problem. They're telling me it's my software. I'm like, you, t- you give me a new server and put the same software on there, it's going to run great. And I'm more right than I thought I was. Love when that happens. Okay, so next week, it'll be Tuesday night, unless something happens. Unless I break more ribs or the server goes down again. Tuesday night, 6.30 Pacific Time, which is our permanent new time for this show. And uh, I'm going to try to start closer and closer to on time. That's my uh, March New Year's resolution. And uh, you know what? Something else I'm going to try to do this year, I'm going to try to think in advance who I want on this show and try to get them on. Because I know there's people who would come on and talk to me. And that was that was one thing that was better over on the other radio show that I used to do. And that uh, uh, one of my partners there was pretty good at getting people to come on, and I never had to do that work. So once I'm over here without that person, now I'm never getting people on the show. And that's that's not right. i I, I got to improve that way. But I appreciate all the listeners we have as I, I speak myself with the occasional call like Garrett and the chat room and the text messages and area, every other way that I'm getting interacted with here in uh, 2014. 
And it looks like we're going to finish this just as we're hitting uh, around 10 o'clock here on the West Coast. Uh, this will be in the archives uh, within a few hours, as it always is. Uh, you can look for us on iTunes, on Stitcher. By the way, who beat you in the tournament? Who was the winner? Fat Man. Oh, I was going. Fat Man. Okay. Fat Man, by the way, oh, is not one, he, Fat Man's not like one of these guys who is really skinny and calls himself Fat Man. He says he's actually really fat. So, uh, props to him on his honesty. He played here. well. Yeah, he played well, and he's fat. Okay, very good, Fat Man. You won the twenty-five dollars cash this week. We'll see you all next week with more free roll money and more stories. Good night and shalom.